like that. You want Hello to try and all that. welcome it's to like this back. Friday edition of the Logan Blackman Show. <sighs> it's Friday. We have made it to Friday. And this weekend, I am I'm relatively stress-free. I'm relatively stress-free this weekend, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show why we're so stress-free. But before we get into anything today, make sure you're following the Logan Blackman Show on every single form of social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, the most important part, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you're following on every single form of social media. Twitter is Logan underscore Blackman. Instagram account is Blackman Logan with the show's Instagram account being the Logan Blackman Show 1. Facebook and YouTube, search Logan Blackman Show. It should pop up. Make sure to subscribe and like on both. And then again, most importantly, if you're not already, make sure, even if you are, if you think you are, just make sure that you are following and subscribed to the Logan Blackman Show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a rating out of five stars on both. I would greatly appreciate it. You can leave a one-star rating if you feel so obligated to. I don't really care. Just leave a rating. That's all, <laughs> that's all, that's all I appreciate, really. But today is a, is a fun day. It is a very, very fun day because I will tell you why today is a fun day. So today, for those of you who are unaware of what today is, for you guys, I guess, it is October 21st. For me, it's October 20th. For me, we are exactly one month away from the 2022 Fever World Cup. Everybody give yourselves a round of applause. We are almost there. We are almost there, ladies and gentlemen. And then for you guys listening to the show right now, you are a month away from the United States' first World Cup game since 2014 when they lost to Belgium in the round of 16. They're facing Iran on October, on November 21st in Qatar. Give yourselves a round of applause for that as well. It's been a long-ass time. It's been a long-ass time since the United States has been in a World Cup. I will never forget where I was when the United States missed out on the 2018 World Cup. I was in my I was in the dorm room. I've talked about this story before. I believe the Blackhawks and the Montreal Canadiens were playing. We couldn't find a stream for the game for the United States Trinidad Tobago game. So I was following along on my phone, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing goal. United States eliminated from World Cup because Panama beat won their game. I don't remember who Panama was playing. The United States most importantly lost to Trinidad and Tobago. All he needed to do was not lose. Not lose. That, that, that's it. There are two other options that the United States could have had there. Two other options. And they chose option C, which wasn't even a realistic option. This is the worst ranked team in the CONCACAF group at the time. You can't. I don't care if it's on the road. I don't care if it's on the road. I know places down in South America or Latin America when the United States goes to play are very hostile environments, which is a great atmosphere for this kind of stuff. This is Trinidad and Tobago. You're not going to Honduras. You're not going to Mexico. You're not going to Costa Rica, Panama, wherever. You're going to Trinidad and Tobago, who, again, were ranked dead last in the qualification group. And the United States lost to them. And going back to then versus now, that might have been just a blessing in disguise. Because what the United States was at that time was terrible. They're terrible. You look at the squad. We talked about this, uh, I think, last week. We talked about it last week, about the United States squad that played against Trinidad and Tobago. It is not great. It's not great. So you got Tim Howard, the greatest goal in the United States history. I know people are going to say, like, Casey Keller, Tim Miola, but Tim Howard's the best. And then we got DeAndre Yedlin, who's still currently around the fold. Dude's at 75 caps right now. 75. <laughs> DeAndre Yedlin is... 25 caps away from 100. That is crazy. That is crazy. And 
I don't even think there was a really a real time, maybe a few like couple years, but a time where he was the number one United States, the number one right back for the United States. I feel like they played so many players at that right back position that <laughs> DeAndre Yedley got most of his appearances off the bench, at least I would imagine. Especially with Sergio Des coming up, Reggie Cannon, and then De- uh, Yedlin taking that little like sabbatical thing in 2020, so he didn't make a single appearance. And then before getting brought back, he was struggling for def- he was struggling a lot over in England. Didn't really work out in Tottenham. Didn't really work out with Newcastle and Sunderland defensively. He was found out every other game, or almost every game, every game. Great going forward defensively, a mess at times. I went to Galatasaray, had some success there. Guys, contract terminated in the end. <laughs> by mutual consent, and then now it's playing for Inter-Miami. Then we had a center-back partnership of Omar Gonzalez and Matt Beasler. I love Matt Beasler. Matt Beasler was the captain for my favorite MLS team, Sporting Kansas City. Long-time servant there, spent his last year in the MLS with Austin FC. However you feel about that. It sucks to see a legend leave. Like for the Blackhawks, I watched Duncan Keith go to the Edmonton Oilers for one season. What did that do? Why couldn't he just retire a Blackhawk? Why couldn't Beasler just retire a a sporting Kansas City player. Why did he need to make the move? You could have been a one-club man. But Bat Beasler, arguably the greatest club captain in sporting Kansas City's history, had a lot of success at sporting, was a longtime servant, and he's a Kansas City native from Overland Park, Kansas, which is just right outside Kansas City. I mean, Omar Gonzalez, he was supposed to be good. He was supposed to be really good. He was playing for LA Galaxy at the time, I believe. Then he went down to, like, Pachuca in Mexico and then went to Toronto, like, he had a really, really weird career post this debacle. <laughs> then he had Jorge Viafania. We remembered his name this time, Jorge Viafania. Played for Portland Timbers for a while. Then uh, did he play did he play for Cincinnati? He played for some other team in the MLS. I think he's played a couple places, but he was another one that kind of just rotated around. They never really had a nailed-on left back, especially when Jurgen Klinsman burnt his bridge with Fabian Johnson. Like, that was so weird. That Fabian Johnson thing. And then Demarcus Beasley was up in the national team every once in a while. Never really had a nailed-on left back until Anthony Robinson came. Now the left back spot is nailed down for the foreseeable future anyways. Then Michael Bradley, you've heard my opinions about Michael Bradley. Then Darlington Nagby. I remember when they got him from, oh crap, Liberia. I think he was was stuck between Liberia and the United States. Representing for international level. I could be wrong. I think it was Liberia. That was massive. He was balling out for the Portland Timbers. Absolutely bowling out. Could play on the wing, could play as an attacking midfielder, as a deep line playmaker, whatever. He was a baller. Wore the number 10 jersey on a few occasions, just didn't really work out in the end. And then you had Paul Ariolo still on the team, Clint, uh, Christian Pulisic, who's still on the team, Josie Altidore, one of them, uh, he's probably the greatest striker the United States has ever produced, probably, but he didn't really have a lot of competition. We've talked about Josie Altidore and the talent versus the production on a few occasions here on the Logan Blackman show about like when he was over in Sunderland, he scored one goal in a calendar year. One goal. How many strikers across the world of international football are continuously getting starting appearances for their national team apart from Josie Altor? Because the United States never has had a really nailed on striker. They've had good strikers in the past like Ari Wynalda, uh, Brian McBride, Taylor Twellman. You've had some other decent strikers. But Josie Altidore, athletically, is the best one they've ever had. But it's hard to say that he, I mean, goal-wise, he's got like 40-something goals and 100-plus appearances. He struggled for 
goals in the international level as well. And then he went on a really hot streak before the 2014 World Cup before he pulled his hamstring against Ghana in the first game. And then we were tricked to or treated to watching Aaron Johansson play. That was fun. Good Lord. Chris Wondolowski, for how great he was in the MLS, never worked out with the national team. Never worked out. And then you had Bobby Ching, uh, Bob, not Bobby Ching. I'm, mix, I'm confusing two players here. Brian Ching played for FC Dallas. FC Dallas, Houston Dynamo. Again, like Chris Wondolowski, had a very nice MLS career, just never really had it work out at the international level. And then Bobby Wood, he bounced around a little bit over in Europe for a little bit. I know he played for Union Berlin is where Jordan Pifok plays right now. I don't remember where else he played. I know he came back to the MLS and play, played for Real Salt Lake. He played in the Dutch League for a little bit, I imagine. Or I'm, I'm imagining. I believe. But there was a stretch where Bobby Wood was playing very, very well for the United States. Him and Clint Dempsey were working very, really, very really well off each other. They had Jaius Zardes in this fray as well. Bobby Wood was playing really well. And then Clint Dempsey's there, the greatest American soccer player of all time, in my opinion. I know... Landon Donovan's up there. We already talked about Tim Howard and the goalies and all those guys, but Landon Donovan's the greatest player of all, or Landon Donovan, not Landon Donovan. Clint Dempsey is the greatest player of all time. Then we had Kellen Acosta there as well, and then Benny Failhaber, another great Sporting Kansas City player, bounced around the MLS for a little bit, went to Europe for a tiny bit, but came back. Sporting Kansas City legend, but just not a good... You look at that squad, apart from Pulisic, none of those guys were young players. Like, you look at Tim Howard. Omar Gonzalez, Matt Beasler, Bradley, Altador, Dempsey, older players. The United States has got the youngest squad based off World Cup qualifying, the youngest squad at the World Cup. Obviously, that can change when the World Cup squads are announced, but currently, based off what they did in World Cup qualifying, the United States is the youngest squad at international level. Like, you look at some of the best players the United States has, they all are around the age of 22 years old. This is very exciting as a United States men's national team fan because of how young this team is. This tournament's nice because this isn't something that there's heaping expectations on this team to go into it. They're not expected to go in and win. They're not going in expecting to upset the apple cart and all that stuff. No. This is a nice building block tournament for where the United States is hosting the World Cup in 2026 with Mexico and Canada. Like, this is a nice building block for that tournament. You've got a really, really, really talented group of young players that'll be leading this team to the World Cup, and they'll be facing England, Iran, and Wales. Those are all going to be really tough tests. But I think the United States can see their way out of the group. I don't know if they'll beat England. I think England, uh, I mean, hell, the United States wasn't supposed to even tie England when they played in 2010. The United States ended up winning the group. So it's... Or I don't know if they won the group. They were joint top with England. But I don't remember if they actually were officially top the group with that winner versus Algeria. But England had an ad in the paper about this group being easy. Back in 2010, it was the United States, England, Algeria, and Slovenia. Easy. You had E for England, A for Algeria, S for Slovenia, and Y for Yanks. And it was supposed to be easy. And England struggled. And they had more arguably arguably more star power in that team versus the team they got now. But, I don't know. I was going to say there's less question marks about the goalkeeper position, but I don't know if there is. I think Jordan Pickford is a really, really, really good international goalkeeper. He struggles at times at club level, but he's been playing decent enough for Everton this year under Frank Lampard, who was in that 2010 World Cup squad for England and played against the United States. 
but I think Jordan Pickford's locked that thing down. I don't really like you look at people trying to make arguments for people who can displace Pickford as the number one goalie for for England. Like Nick Pope is the best natural stop stopper England has, but he's not good with his feet at all. That's where Jordan Pickford towers over everybody else. Jordan Pickford has been to a World Cup semifinal and has been to a Euros final. And he's played really well in both tournaments. So it's kind of hard for me to sit here and go like, yeah, Dean Henderson should be playing for for England over Jordan Pickford because he saved a few penalties. Or Aaron Ramsdale. No, I think those two in time, I think Dean Henderson can pass up Jordan Pickford in the pecking order because I think Dean Henderson naturally is the best goal of the United States or the United States. England has in regards to distribution, save like penalty saves and all that stuff. But I don't think he's got enough playing time to warrant passing up Jordan Pickford. And Pickford's been healthy, so that's been another thing. Pickford hasn't lost the job. Until Pickford does something bad or someone or he doesn't it goes a stretch without playing, his job's fairly secure. That's the problem that happened with Zach Steffen. He wasn't around the squad, and Turner had enough time to build momentum and eventually pass him. Like there was a time where Zach Steffen was the unchallenged number one goalie for the United States. He was captain, doing all this stuff, had like 18, 20 appearances in two years when he first got called up the national team. And then now we're sitting, he's at 29 appearances since then, and Matt Turner is now at 20. Matt Turner made his first appearance for the United States in January of 2021. He's at 20 appearances. Matt Turner won the Supporters' Shield in the MLS this past, last season with New England Revolution, which is the best record in the regular season for the MLS, which is basically meaning you would win a ch- that'd be a championship in every single league across the world, but the MLS and American sports, we love ourselves playoffs. So New England Revolution ended up losing in the playoffs. NYCFC won the championship. And I believe NYCFC beat New England in the, the semifinals on penalties. If I remember correct, I think I, I think I remember watching that game. It was in the Yankee Stadium. And NYCFC won the game on penalties. I think that was in Valentino. Um, I think that's his name. The striker for... I did a bad job watching MLS this year. Sporting Kansas City was trash. So I'm... I My MLS <laughs> my MLS knowledge is not as good as what it normally is. I'm sorry about that. But Sporting Kansas City, they'll be back next year. They'll be back next year. Everything will be fine. We'll be good with that. <sighs> but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for this World Cup. I... Speaking of the goalies, I think Matt Turner has nailed down the starting berth, at least at this point. There's been really rare squads where Zach Steffen and Matt Turner are in the team together because Steffen's either hurt or has like prior engagement with Manchester City or something. Now he's with Middlesbrough. Played well when he's not hurt, but he's hurt again. And when Matt Turner's consistently being consistently healthy, he just got a shutout in the Europa League for Arsenal. Today, it was today or yesterday. I don't remember when I saw it. But he's playing well. He's staying healthy, playing well. His distribution has gone up tenfold. This is a dude that didn't really start playing goalie until he was in his 20s, I believe. I think that's what the story is. He hasn't been playing goalie like his entire life or something. This has been like a short-term thing. And now he's the starting goalie for the United States in the World Cup. One would suspect. One would suspect. Now, out of that squad that we saw face Trinidad and Tobago... Out of the pictures they have here, there are four players that are still in the fray. And that's DeAndre Yedlin, Paul Ariola, Christian Pulisic, and Count Acosta. And I think, spoiler alert, I think all of them will make the World Cup. I think all four of those guys make the World Cup. Yedlin is a weird one because he's probably 
the fastest right back the United States has. He's really good going forward, can cross really well while on the move. But defensively, he's not very good at all. In regards to Paul Ariola, he's just one of Greg Berhalter's guys. He's one of Greg's guys. He'll get the call-up for the squad regardless. And he's a very consistent player. He's had a good season for FC Dallas this year. I think he had 10 goals, 7 assists, or something like that. Like he's had a good season for FC Dallas. And I think he's warranted a spot on the planet Qatar as a backup right winger. But he's not going to start. When everybody's healthy, Tim Way and Giovanni Reina are both above Paul Ariola in the pecking order. Pulisic's six, the best player on the team, so he's in. And then Kellen Acosta... Very good player, can play a multitude of positions, very good on set piece, probably the best set piece taker the United States has, but sadly, since he's not a starter, he's probably going to be way down the pegging order, and Pulisic is going to be taking every single set piece the United States has. Rightly or wrongly, rightly or wrongly. I'm not saying Pulisic's bad at set pieces. He's better than Sebastian Leggett, who tried to take all set pieces in the Gold Cup in 2021, but but, um, but Costa is the best set piece specialist the United States has. And with the World Cup, like the start time, the first game taking place on November 20th and the first game of the United States taking place on, October, on November 21st, I felt like this was the perfect time to make our officially official United States Men's National Team 2022 World Cup squad prediction brought to you by the Logan Blackman Show and water. You know, drink water, drink responsibly, you know, all that, all that good stuff. So with the United States men's national team, I do think there's a few spots that are fairly easy to figure out, like where they don't really need a lot of introduction. They don't really need a lot of thinking. It's just the United States is, they have a really good crop of players, but then there's a gap and then there's everybody else pretty much. Where there's a talent pool of these players are good, and then you've got people Greg Berhalter likes and trusts, which is very important. I don't want to diminish that. People want to seem to diminish or want to diminish the importance of managerial trust in players. Because you look at England, we'll bring up England again. Like I remember a few years ago, Andres Townsend, who was a technically gifted player, left footed players, played all across England. He's played for Tottenham, he's played for Newcastle, he currently plays for Crystal Palace. Plays on the right wing. Doesn't score a ton of goals, but can score worldies every now and again. But he kept getting called up for the England squad. And it had nothing really to do with what he was doing at club level because he rarely started, especially when he was at Tottenham. He's a good rotation piece, but that's not enough to usually get you called up the national team. But he got called up because his, performance his performances were consistent on the national team. You see that with the English squad now. Harry Maguire hasn't started a game for Manchester United in a while. And yet he's going to start at center back for the United, for England at the World Cup. One, and I think this is also important, the trust thing's there. But the second thing is the English national team does not really have a wide crop of experienced international center backs, which is Garrett Southgate's fault. I understand that. Because there's players like Fakayo Tomori over at AC Milan, just won the Scudetto over there in Italy. You have Mark Gahey who's playing for Crystal Palace. He's the vice captain at Crystal Palace. He's playing really, really well. Trevor Chalaba's played well for, for Chelsea when he's getting opportunities in the back three, which is what England plays. But they don't have like a vast, vast, vast variety of options. So the trust is key, and then the fact that they don't have a lot of options. Harry Maguire really hasn't played that bad. I'm not going to sit here and say he's been amazing at these tournaments. He did score a penalty in the game against Italy in the final, which is a great penalty. Scored a goal against, um, he scored the goal in the World Cup, but I don't remember who it was against. Great goal there. Obviously a headed goal, obviously. 
but he's just so frustrating. Like, he's so big and so unathletic that when he gets turned around, he's liable to trip over his own feet. You know exactly what I'm talking I think you could picture that. Like, if a, an attacker's driving at Harry Maguire and they do a little one-two, oh, he's falling over. He's not quick enough to recover anyways. He's like one of those old-school English center backs that's just a big dude that's going to be heading the ball at everywhere. Physicality's key, but speed, athleticism is not up there. But he hasn't put a foot wrong for England. So he's going to get keep he's going to keep getting called up. Luke Shaw's another one. Luke Shaw really you look at the left back options for England, you've got Ben Chilwell there as well who's been in, he's been an in and out of Chelsea starting lineup mostly due to injury. But Luke Shaw just got benched for Tyrone Malassia. Now he has been put back in the team and has been playing well recently. But there was no reason for him while he was benched to get called up to the English national team apart from the fact Gareth Southgate trusts him. And England has a vast majority of vast array of right backs. Like I don't I know I understand people don't like doing this, but you can play an inverted wing back in a back three system like what England's playing, or a back five, whatever the hell you want to look at it as. Like, Kieran Trippier can play left back. I'm not saying it's his natural position. It's clearly not. But he can play left back. And he's another one that Gareth Southgate really trusts. And you see other players like Trent Alexander-Arnold, Jack Grealish, um, James Madison, players like that that aren't getting called up because they don't trust him. And that's key. Marcus Rashford hasn't been back in the team. Jane Sancho hasn't been back in the team. Like, Jane Sancho and Marcus Rashford, that one's more on club level, which is like, okay, if you're going to judge them on club level, why are you not judging Maguire and all these other guys on club level? Because he trusts them. Make sense? Does that make sense? You got me? So, like, there's players that Greg Berhalter trusts more than players that are probably better. And I think the main guy that everybody's going to be looking at is Jordi Mihailovic. He's an attacking midfielder playing for Montreal. A CF Montreal or the Club de Football de Montreal or something like that. Or Montreal de Football Canadien or something like that. I don't know. But he's had a very good season for Montreal. Montreal is not normally known for having a solid soccer team. They just made the change from Montreal Impact to CF Montreal. And they've been playing well. And Jordi Mihailovic has been the best player on this team. He has put forth an MVP style-esque season for a team that's not normally at the top of the MLS. Like Jordi Mihailovic, what is his numbers this year? I have them written down. He's got 10 goals and 7 assists for the regular season and playoffs this year. Those are good numbers. For a team that does not really have a lot of offensive output. And there was a recent interview with Mihailovic. I don't know who, I don't know if it was with the with TSN or something, the Toronto Sports Network or Total Sports Network. I, I basically just call it Toronto Sports Network because it's only based in Toronto where he basically said he talked to Greg Berhalter about the squad, and he said, quote, where is it? I didn't hear what I wanted to hear, to be honest. Now, that could be him keeping his cards close to the vest, or it could be Greg Berhalter told him, hey, Dad, yeah, yeah, you're not going to make the squad. And you've got players like that who feel hard done by, that feel like they should make the squad, but then you've got other players. Like, I wouldn't really be surprised. I don't think he'll make it. I don't think either one of these guys will make it, but I could see there being a shout for Sebastian Legette and Christian Roldan making the squad from the center midfield spot. And Jordi Mihailovic has been playing better than the pair this season. But you know what? Burhalter trusts Roldan and Legette. Legette can play everywhere. 
legit ha- can and has played every single position for the United States in the midfield and up. Like he's played as a winger. He's even played as a striker, as a false nine. He's played attacking midfield, defensive, all that stuff. Greg Berhalter trusts him. And then you got Christian Christian Roldan, who is a better player than Sebastian Legette, in my opinion. But Christian Roldan comes in as a su- quote-unquote super sub, and it's the exact opposite of a normal super sub, where a super sub comes in normally and scores the goals late, like Chicharito for Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, like those types of players. You'd bring them on the 60-something minute, they come in and get you a late goal. That's normally what a super sub is. There's other super subs, though, that come in to see out a game. And these are the type of players that will never do anything wrong. They will just be nice, consistent. They will not lose you any game. They'll be smart in the tackle. They won't lunge into anything. They won't lose the ball. They'll make smart passes. That's what Christian Roldan's role is seemingly for the United States. That's his role, it feels like. And Jordi Mihailovic, one of the best attacking options the United States has in regards to attacking midfielders, probably won't make it. That's a shame. That's a shame for a player. I'm not, I don't, again, I don't think Roldan and Legette will make it. But I think there's a shout that both one of them could make it. I would lean probably towards more Rodan because, again, seeing out the match type thing. He trusts Legette a lot, but Legette's not going to start. And Legette, he likes to start Legette. And Rodan, I think I would trust more in those late game situations. Maybe that's wrong, but that's just how I'm viewing it right now. But without any more delay, we're kind of just rambling at this point, just talking about random crap for the United States men's national team. If you have not, though, make sure you go to loganblattmanshow.com, go under the blog tab, and you can view the article for yourself. You can read along with me. I'm not Well, I'm not reading along, but you can read my descriptions on why I feel the way I do about why he'll call up. And I would just like to preface this. This is not my squad. This is a prediction. Predictions are what you think the manager will do or what the coach will do or the team will do, whatever. Predictions are not valued around like, oh, Logan would do this. Why? That doesn't matter. I'm not calling up anybody. I can't make any choice for the United States men's national. I can give my opinion about players I think that should make it, but I can't sit there and go, I'm going to predict that, I don't know, David Beckham gets called up for the United States men's national team. He's not going to, but I would take David Beckham on the United States men's national team. Even now, I would take David Beckham. David Beckham's one of my favorite players of all time. Was huge in the sport, in the Growing popularity in the MLS was massive in that. I had a David Beckham LA Galaxy jersey when I was in elementary school. It wasn't an LA Galaxy jersey. It just said Beckham everywhere. Like the sponsor was Beckham. The logo was 23. 23 on the back with Beckham. It was an awesome jersey. Sick jersey. I have no idea where it is. I haven't seen it in years. Probably gone. Way gone. But like my opinion does not matter here. I mean my opinion matters in what I'm saying about what I'm predicting but in the grand scheme of things, in regards to, oh, I think I'd, I'd call up this player. It doesn't matter what I think. It does not matter. So, like, when you start off with the goalkeepers, I think there's five in the mix for goalies. I think you got Ethan Horvath, Sean Johnson, Gabby Slonina, Slonina, or Gabby, or what's it, what is it, Gaga? I think that's what his name he goes by. Zach Stevan and Matt Turner. I think we can already push Zach Stevan and Matt Turner to the squad. Gabby, or Gabriel, Gabriel Slonina. Plays for FC... Jeez, I'm struggling all over my words right now. Plays for the Chicago Fire. On loan. He just made the move to Chelsea. He's on loan at the Chicago Fire. We'll move over to Chelsea at some point in the near future. He is seen as the next in line for the United States goalkeeping spot. He's very, very talented. He got like Joel Polskamp as well for Sporting Kansas City. who He's been called up a few times to the United States. But he's not... Slanina is not making it. 
I would like to say that he'd make it. It could be a surprise inclusion is to get him around the situation, but I don't I don't see it personally. I think it's between Sean Johnson and Ethan Horvath for that last spot. And Sean Johnson really should be making the squad, if we're being honest. Sean Johnson's the captain for NYCFC or one of the captains for NYCFC. When MLS Cup last year was captain of the game, was the man of the match. Like he's He's one of the dudes. Like he's one of the older, experienced vets. He was in the the Gold Cup squad last year, but that's also because a lot of players had prior European con- contract negotiations, like uh, obligations in preseason tour and stuff like that. It's like Horvath, Stefan, all those guys. They didn't they didn't make an appearance. That's why they were not in the Gold Cup squad. I, I guess you could mention Brad Guzan in there. I don't know. I'm no. I, I, I would have not felt comfortable at all with going into a World Cup in 2014 with Brad Guzan as the goalkeeper, so I'm, kind of, again, kind of happy they didn't make it. It's saved further embarrassment for that. But I think he'll go with Horvath. I think he'll go with Horvath. When you look at what the United States has had these bigger occasions, Horvath has usually been the third-string guy. I think in the natural pecking order, I think Horvath is above Johnson, according to Burhalter, though Johnson has had more success at club level as a late like, Ethan Horvath made the move to Nottingham Forest, and that move didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But now he's playing over in Luton Town, has played pretty well so far this season. He's played well. Like, Nottingham Forest got promoted, and he was the number two goalie then, and then they brought in Dean Henderson on loan for Manchester United, and then, yeah, it was just done for. I think his distribution's good. He showed up at the big occasion for the United States in the, against Mexico in the Nations League final, saved the penalty there, and I think that left a lasting impression on Greg Berhalter, and I think he'll be the third choice. I don't, I don't think he'll play. I don't think he'll ever play, but I think Greg Berhalter trusts him in those big situations because Ethan Horvath, there was a time where he was seen as the next goalie in line. That was his spot to be the guy to replace Tim Howard. They had a really weird stretch of goal. Like David Bingham got called up. Do you remember that? From the LA Galaxy? That was weird. That was weird. To see his ass in the United States national team? What, what is he even doing now? Is he... Oh, crap. My mic fell off the stand again. Crap. Jeez, he must be listening. David Bingham must be listening. He's coming after me. <laughs> I gotta fix my mic. Rescrew that thing back on. Or am I just gonna have to hold this like a freaking psychopath the entire time? And we're keeping this all in. This is natural. What the hell is going on? I have no idea what's happening right now. And I don't like it. I don't like it. My mi- I moved my microphone and the ghost of David Bingham came out and smited me. Hold on, we're almost there. I don't know why it seems to always do this. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Keep it all in. Keep it all in. All natural. Okay, David, was it Bingham? I think it's David Bingham. Yeah, David Bingham. David Bingham. He's playing for Portland. I was not aware of that. I did not know he played for Portland. He played for the LA Galaxy for a little bit. It was San Jose. That's when he got called up, though. That's when he got called up. We have made three appearances for the United States men's national team. That was so. That was the stretch where the United States didn't make the World Cup, and I was like, oh god. David Bingham's getting called up. Who the hell else do we have? Do we have a nobody? Nobody else? I don't even remember who else got called up. I just specifically remember David Bingham getting called up because that was so weird. 
At least it was weird to me. It might not have been weird in the grand scheme of things, but it was weird to me. But yeah, I think the three goalies will be Stefan, Horvath, and Turner. I think Turner will start. Stefan, two. Horvath, three. Right backs, I think there's five. Then you got Reggie Cannon. You got Serginho Desch, Shaq Morse, Joe Scaley, and DeAndre Yedlin. I don't think Shaq Moore will make it. I just want to mention Shaq Moore because he did have a very good Gold Cup last year. I think he deserves some sort of mention. He was in the team of the tournament in the Gold Cup. Hasn't made a ton of appearance for the United States since then. He's currently playing with FC Cincinnati, I believe. Or Nashville, Nashville, Nashville. But yeah, he's a very good attacking wing back. Defensively, he's, he's probably the best going forward out of the wing out of the right backs, but he's probably also the worst defensively. <laughs> but I think Dest is a lock. Dest will start. Regardless of how shaky he's been at club level recently, especially with Barcelona, he's he's the best right back the United States has. Bar none. It's not really close. I know, like, I know Joe Scaley's playing really, really well for Borussia Mönchengladbach. They're the top six team in the Bundesliga right now, and he's starting week in and week out as a 19-year-old. Very impressive stuff, but Dest is still the number one guy. I think Dest gets called up. We already talked about Yedlin. I think Yedlin gets called up. Burhalter likes to play him at right back and play Dest at left back at times. I think Reggie Cannon gets called up because I think Reggie Cannon's the best defensive right back they have. He's the most probably complete right back they have, and Greg Berhalter trusts him. And then I'm going to bring up Joe Scaley as well. So we're bringing four right backs. Four right backs. Because Joe Scaley, much like we mentioned with Dest, has the ability to play left back as well. They both played left back. They can both play right back. Dest hasn't played left back in a little bit, but he played left back while he was over with Ajax. And he scored a few goals. I think it was against Jamaica coming in from the left back spot. Cutting in on his right and taking strikes from the left back. I think it was against Jamaica. With DeAndre Yedlin playing right back. But I would like to imagine that Joe Scaley made somewhat of an impression during the last camp because in those games against Japan and Saudi Arabia where the United States looked very, very bad, he was probably the best player they had at that point, played the best, put forth the best performances. So I hope that would be some sort of impression. I think he is the fourth choice right back, according to Greg Berhalter, Gordon Greg Berhalter. But I think he could serve well as left back. And then the left back, it's just Anthony Robinson. Like, I like Sam Vines. I like George Bellow. But I'm just going to bring Anthony Robinson. I think that's what he'll do. I think Anthony Robinson's a very talented left back. He's far and away the best option the United States has. I don't think there's a further gap at any other position than Anthony Robinson at left back for the United States. And I'm trying to think, like, maybe... Like, you look at center mids, but that's both of them. McKinney and Musa over the next best center back or center mids. I think that's a case you can make, but I don't know. There's a huge gap between Anthony Robinson and everybody else. In regards to the center backs, I think there's eight available. But I really think there's seven, but I have to. I wanted to mention an eighth one. So I got Carter Vickers, Aaron Long, Mark McKenzie, Eric Palmer, Brown, Tim Reen, Chris Richards, Walker Zimmerman, and John Brooks. John Brooks, I don't think, has a shot at making the World Cup. He hasn't been called up in like a year. I don't really think Burhalter rates him. And I think it's a combination of like three different things. First one being John Brooks is the best center back the United States has. And that's not the thing I'm starting to say here. United, he is the best center back the United States has. The thing is, with that, he doesn't like the idea of him possibly coming off the bench in the World Cup. When you've been around as long as John Brooks has, like he scored the winning goal against Ghana in 2014. This dude's been around the United States squad for a while, and I don't even think he has 50 caps yet. Like they, he's just not getting caps because he, he's not his attitude. Apparently, this is what people are speculating. This isn't my words. Speculating that he doesn't want to be a number two. 
even if there's a chance he'd be number two, he doesn't want to be a part of it. And I can kind of understand that. I understand the idea of like be a part of the team, be the team. There's more important things here. But when you look at the rest of the options the United States has at center back, John Brooks is really better than all of them. He is. So I can understand the attitude with that. And then the second thing is he can't stay healthy. There's rarely been a season at club level and even international level where he has been healthy for an extended period of time. Like, it's just very rare that you see a long stretch of games with John Brooks consistently playing week in and week out, game in and game out, for a club and international level. He'd get called up to the United States squad, and then he would draw due to injury. He has a niggling injury almost every single camp, it feels like. And then the final thing is, this is Greg Berhalter's words, he doesn't play the ball to back well. Which, then I present to you Aaron Long. So, then I don't really know what the case is with John Brooks, but I don't think he'll make it. I think that's wrong that he won't make it, but I don't think he will. I don't think he will. But I think Aaron Long, we just brought him up, I think he will. And this one goes down to what we talked about earlier, trust. Aaron Long has been really inconsistent past year and has battled a crap ton of injuries, had a really bad injury stretch for a little bit. But when we brought up trust earlier, when Burhalter first got the United States men's national team job, Aaron Long was the first captain he ever had. And I remember that was a big thing back then. I don't remember who's been captain in a lot of games, but I remember that one specifically because Michael Bradley was playing in that game, who was the current captain for the United States. And Aaron Long took the captaincy off of him. Aaron Long was the MLS Defender of the Year at that time. There was a move to West Ham in the works, and then he had, I think, an Achilles injury. He's had a couple really weird injuries, but then you look at the 2019 Gold Cup. Aaron Long was the only consistent starter at center back. He rotated Matt Miazga and Walker Zimmerman. Aaron Long was the only consistent figure back there. And then Aaron Long kept getting hurt, so it was like, okay, well, he's done. But then now that he's healthy, he's back in the team because he's someone Greg Berhalter trusts. Rightly or wrongly, rightly or wrongly, this is Greg Berhalter, not me. Rightly or wrongly, he trusts him, so he's going to make the squad. At least that's what I would think right now. I think Tim Ream is another player that he really trusts, and I put Team Ream on the... Okay, that's fun. I'm glad that I noticed that now. I'm glad that I noticed that now. Team Ream as a, one of my center back options. Great. That's going to bother me, but I'm, I'm going to leave it like that. I'm going to leave it. A nice little Easter egg for everybody. I think Tim Ream has a real shot at making it as well. I don't think he ultimately will, but I think... We said this last year. I think Tim Ream would be one of those guys that's brought on to the World Cup that will not play a single minute. But I think he'd be a guy that could bring a lot of experience to one of the older players. He's 33 years old, I think. Playing consistently for Fulham in the Premier League, no less, with Anthony Robinson. I think there is a spot for Ream on this team, Team Ream. But I don't think he'll make it. I don't think he will. Though he's in a good run of form right now, I think Aaron Long beats him out for that long. I think Aaron Long will start next to Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman is the only one that I can almost like guarantee is making it. Because he's been a captain for the United States recently and has been a consistent figure in Greg Peralta's selections for the past however many months. Like, Walker Zimmerman's a very imposing force back there. Doesn't really do a lot that wows people, but he's very physical and he's a really good leader in Greg Peralta. Again, trust him. And then the other two center backs behind Long and, or Long and Zimmerman, I think are Chris Richards, who has struggled for game time to a certain extent at Crystal Palace, but he's the most talented center back the United States has. And then Gary McCarter-Vickers, who's been playing very, very well for Celtic recently. He's even been given the captain's armband from time to time with Cal McGregor being out hurt. Like, he's been playing 
well for Celtic. He got a permanent move there this past summer and is consistently starting in all the biggest games for Celtic. Like, I think in his passing range is probably the best out of the center backs, we're being honest. Like, he's played very, very well. I think Mark McKenzie is definitely definitely deserves a mention in the squad. Eric Palmer-Brown, who I completely forgot was on the earth still, he used to play for Sporting Kansas City, then made the move to Man City, and then didn't really do anything, loaned out a hundred times. Like, Mix Discarude was on Man City, technically, for a little bit. Never did anything. Never did abs- Never did anything for Man City. And remember, he wore the number 10 jersey at the 2014 World Cup. Isn't that depressing? Jurgen Klinsmann was on a wind-up with Donovan and then went call him up and gave Mix Discarude the number 10 jersey and then proceeded not... Not to play him one minute the entire tournament. That is all types of disrespectful. They were on their disrespectful shit back then. And I can't say it wasn't warranted. <laughs> Donovan burned a lot of bridges back then. Donovan burnt a lot of bridges back then. I don't want to take away from his greatness, but he did. He did. But mix this screw wearing the number 10 jersey and not playing in the World Cup is just disrespectful. <laughs> or 24, did I say 2010 World Cup? I meant 2014 World Cup. Hell, even 16-year-old Julian Green played. I don't know how old Julian Green was at the time. 18 years old. He was supposed to be awesome. He scored a goal against Belgium in extra time when they lost 2-1. to one, When Tim Howard had like 15 saves. But it wasn't It wasn't meant to be. <laughs> but there's my center backs. So my back, my back line for the United States. I have four right backs, four center backs, and one left back. Again, it is Serginho Dest, Reggie Cannon. Joe Scaly and DeAndre Yedlin. Center backs is Cameron Carter-Vickers, Aaron Long, Chris Richards, and Walker Zimmerman. And left back, we have Anthony Robinson. Defensive midfield, I think they're getting, they're taking two. Tyler Adams and Kellen Acosta, pretty easy. We kind of explained Kellen Acosta earlier. Tyler Adams is the best or second best player on this team and one of the favorites to be captain. There's not really a lot to talk about there. Uh, Johnny Cardozo plays for Internacional in Brazil. Got called up recently, but I don't really think he's got a shot. I just wanted to mention him because he did get called up to the squad. And then we got James Sands. James Sands is interesting because James Sands can play both center back and defensive mid. And what we saw in the Gold Cup last year was James Sands, when they would play with the back five with James Sands in the middle in that quote-unquote David Luiz role, if you know what I'm talking about, where when you look at what Chelsea did under Antonio Conte when David Luiz came back from PSG, they played in a back three with David Luiz in the middle and allowed him to push forward more if need be, to basically be like a deep, deep, deep-lying defensive midfielder. So it would kind of be like a diamond at times, but they would push him up in the midfield at times. That's what James Sand did in the Gold Cup. Has looked shaky from time to time playing as a center back in a back four. You can see that a lot this year with Rangers as well. He's played consistently, or consistently enough, I guess. But... Yeah, I think there's a shot at him making it. I'd like to see him make it because I bring, think he brings you that option, especially since Greg Berhalter does at times like to play with the back five. I do think that would be an option there, a nice option that he should at least consider. But I don't ultimately think he will choose him, and I think he'll just go with Acosta and uh, uh, Tyler Adams with that spot. Midfielders, central midfielders, we got eight of them. I got Jean-Luc Abusio. Luca De La Torre, Sebastian Legette, Weston McKinney, Jordi Mihailovic. I had to mention him even though I know he's not going to make the squad. Jonas Musa, Chris, Christian Roldan, and Malik Tillman. Again, like we did with midfield, the defensive midfielders, we got two that are locks, McKinney and Musa. They're going to start together. You got a midfield three of Tyler Adams, Jonas Musa, and Weston McKinney. That is a very, very, very good midfield trio. That's a beautiful midfield trio. Absolutely love it. The backups, though, Luca De La Torre, I think, is a close 
lock. I know he's not playing a lot for Celta Vigo. Just made the move there this summer. I know he's not playing a ton, but his appearances for the United States during these international breaks, during these World Cup qualifiers, he played very, very well. He had a really good run of form when he was playing over in the Netherlands. I can't. I'm not even going to attempt to say the name of the team because I can't really pronounce it. Well, where is it at? I wrote it down. Uh, Her Heracles Almelo, Heracles Almelo. I again, that's why I'm not saying it. That's why I'm not saying it. It's in the Dutch league, so you can go look it up yourself. Try and spell that out. You heard me say it. Go and try and spell it out. Look for up. Look it up for yourself. But he played really, really well in those games. He'd be a surprise starter from time to. I remember when he first got called up and he started starting games. It was like, oh, this is kind of kind of odd. But no, he can definitely hold his own. He can definitely hold his own in the national team, and I think that will be big there. And he, I think just his performances alone for the United States will get him a call-up. And then the last one, we mentioned the importance of Christian Oldan and Sebastian Legette, at least at Greg's eyes. But I think Malik Tillman, I don't know if Malik Tillman would ever play for the United States in the World Cup, but I think bringing him up would be really smart. Because Malik Tillman is one of the most talented players the United States has at their disposal. He's in Bayern Munich's academy. He's on loan at Rangers right now playing with James Sand. He's playing really consistently for Rangers. He's a little inconsistent at that mark. But I think that also comes to him playing a little bit out of position. He's not a he's not a wide midfielder. He's like Rangers likes to play with a back five and the four in the midfield. It's a very weird formation with one striker. And he usually plays on the wide wide spots on both of them in the midfield. But he's an attacking midfielder. And I think if you bring him along, you give you have those options. And if you don't want to play him, that's where Kellen Acosta comes in. And Kellen Acosta can play those. He can play as a number eight. He can play as a number six. Like he can do all those little things that you're looking for from him. And he can also play, though again, I said he's not that he's better as a midfielder. He can play out wide if need be. He can't. So I think Malik Tillman, I think this would be a big World Cup for him. And he's playing very well. When he does like get it all together, he plays very, very well. He's a very nice player. So I think my midfielders that I'm bringing are Luca De La Torre, Weston McKinney, Jonas Musa, and Malik Tillman. But I could see Malik Tillman being left home for someone else that we'll bring up in a little bit. Right wingers, I think all three of them, we already said this, all three are going to go. We have Paul Ariola, Giovanni Reina, and Tim Weah. I think all of them are going to go. Like, they all offer something completely different. Like Paul Ariola is a natural winger. Paul Ariola will keep the width more than the other two. Tim Weah is a, a former striker. He's a lot more direct than the other two players, and he's a lot more athletic. I'm not well, not more athletic. He's at least faster, more athletic. That that's you know up for debate because there's different parts of his game that Giovanni Reina does that would make him the more athletic player. But it's he's definitely the fastest and being more direct. I think Greg Berhalter likes that. In the latter stages of World Cup qualifying, Tim Weah was the best player the United States had. I think Tim Weah will start. I think Giovanni Reina will come off the bench. I think Ariola can come in late in games. But I think Ariola, and we brought what Wea and Ariola do. Reina is very creative. Reina is a natural midfielder who really only plays as a winger for the United States. He plays left wing at times for Borussia Dortmund, but he plays mostly as a number 10. But he can't, like, he's a big dude. He's like 6'2 or something. He's a bigger dude. He he looks very odd standing next to the in the front line. You got like Jesus Ferrer and Christian Pulisic who are both five nine at best. So like, it's a little weird seeing him next to them and knowing oh that guy's a winger, and the guy in the middle is five nine. It's a striker. <laughs> we'll talk about Ferrer a little bit. But Reyna, if he had a, if he could stay healthy, he this would be his spot. But this is again like we talked about before. 
when someone gets hurt and someone takes advantage of the opportunities, people's eyes start changing, and Tim Weah seemingly is the starter right now at right wing. But Reyna's going to be coming off the bench consistently. He's a very talented player. The strikers, Greg Berhalter said they're six. This is one I didn't even need to come up with a list because I, he said them. He said them. I did have one more name on here, but I eliminated it once I heard Greg talk about it. It's Jesus Ferreira, Jordan Pifok, Ricardo Pepe, Brandon Vasquez from FC Cincinnati who just switched to nationality to the United States, and Haji Wright. I had Jassy Zardes on here, but I didn't really. It's more of a, Greg liked this guy in the past, so I'll list him, but I, he said there's six of them, so I'm going to list those. Jesus Ferreira's going. Jesus Ferreira's the starter. So regardless of how people feel about Jesus Ferreira and him being the leading, him leading the line for the United States, he is coming off a very nice season for FC Dallas. He just got named MLS Young Player of the Year. He had like 18 goals and six assists this year. The problem is that people are having issues with is he, that he's 5'9". He's 5'9". And that's no disrespect to my short kings out there, but man, when you're a striker, seeing a 5'9 dude doesn't really fill you with the most joy, especially when he's playing as a natural striker for the United States. It'd be different if he was dropping back deeper, but they're playing him as a traditional number nine. And he scored some goals for the United States, but hasn't he hasn't really put forth performances that are like, oh yeah, that's the guy, that's the guy. And that's been a problem with the United States in the striker position throughout my lifetime, pretty much. Like, you have moments like, okay, that's the guy. And then you have moments like, oh, he's not the guy. But that's more with Josie. Like, he, we didn't have anybody that was like, oh, yeah, he'll take his spot. No, you never had that. You never had that. You had, like, Edson Buttle. Hercules Gomez had a good run of form. You had, who else? Remember Freddie Adu got called back up for the 20, what, what gold, 2011 Gold Cup? Where they lost to Mexico in the Rose Bowl? Freddie Adu, that was weird. He plays a second striker behind Landon Donovan. That was strange. That was very strange. They moved Clint Dempsey to striker. He used a right winger. They moved him to striker. Or no, he used a left winger. Donovan was right winger. And they played 4-4-2. I don't remember. What, flip him around. I don't know. Robbie Anderson was up. Or Robbie Anderson. Robbie Anderson just got traded to the Cardinals. But uh, Robbie Findlay, terrible. He had like 14 caps and no goals. Terrible. Is there anybody else? I've already brought up Brian Ching. Brought up Bobby Wood. Jassy's art. Like, there's Aaron Johansson. That's the best one. But Ferreira, as of right now, is going to start for the United States up top. Like it or not, he's going to start. Now you got three others that I think are really... I, I respect uh, Brandon Vasquez and Haji, right? Brandon Vasquez hasn't been around the team. So I, I don't really think... I don't think he'll be called up, at least for now. I think he could be eventually. But right now, no. And Haji, right... I don't think he'll get called up. As much as Pulisic likes him, Burhalter didn't really rate him that highly throughout his appearances in the United States in the World Cup qualifying stages and some of the friendlies. But that could go down to the conditions he was playing. It was the fields are trash. The fields are absolutely trash. But I don't think he'll be in it. I think it's between the three you mentioned. And if you look at the last squad, this is how I'm inferring it. This is how I'm inferring it. The last squad saw Ferreira, who's the main guy, with Sargent and Pepe as his backups, with Jordan P. Fuck out of the team. I think this was a play for Burhalter to try and decide who's the third choice striker. I think. I could be wrong. I think he was trying to battle up between Pepe and Sargent. I think P. Fox got his squad place in. Again, I could be very wrong because the guy I think he's going to pick is Sargent. And I think P. Fox will go. But I know Burhalter loves himself some Ricardo Pepe. I know he's got some. But you cannot ignore what they're doing right now. P. Fox is leading the line. And has won, scored three goals and three assists this year for the team that's currently leading the Bundesliga in Union Berlin. How impro- how likely they are to finish on top of the league? 
is very small, but good lord. The fact that it's even happening is ridiculous. You have to bring him on. He's the most natural striker the United States has. He's the most natural-looking target man they have. He's like six foot three. He has great hold-up play as well. You have to bring him. I know he scored only one goal, but it was a late goal, and it was an important game. I was in Ames for that one. And my friend Andrew had an art show. We were at Aunt Mods in Ames watching on my phone. I think it was against Honduras. I could be wrong. It was to get to the Nations League final. Like It was a massive goal. And then Sargent. Sargent's currently the leading goal scorer in the championship right now. Like, Josh Sargent is playing at a ridiculous level right now. He scored eight goals this year. Like, Josh Sargent, his, his whole mantra was the striker who can't score. That was what he was known as, the striker who can't score. He was great in, like, recovering back, like, tracking back and opening up holes for his uh, for other attackers. But other than that, he wasn't doing a whole lot. His running, He ran all over the place, but he couldn't score. Now he's scoring... And I think the other thing that helps him out, too, he can play as a winger. He's played right wing a lot for Norwich City. I think that helps him out a lot. But I could see a reality where, like, Malik Tillman stays home and Pepe and Sargent make the squad. I think that's a reality that could happen. I think there's a very – actually, you know what? That's the first time I've actually thought about this. This This is a really good possibility that it could happen. So I might have to change this because I think that actually might happen now. Hmm. Now I'm thinking. Now I'm because Kellen Acosta can play as a number eight. Hmm. Intriguing stuff. But I think they'll. I think right now, when I typed this up last night, I went with Sergeant over Pepe. Pepe started scoring again recently for Groningen, but there was a stretch for about a year he didn't score a single goal for international level, club level, whatever. He's the mo- he's the record sale <coughs> for a United States player going to Europe. Twenty million from the MLS. Past Alfonso Davies. For North American players, anyways. 20 million plus add-ons going to Augsburg and uh, didn't do anything. Scored no goals, went to Groningen, started scoring goals again. I think he's got six goals in the five competition. Something like that. Five goals and six or something like that for Groningen, I think. But I think ultimately... Man, now I'm actually thinking about it. Ferreira, Pfock, and Sargent, I think, will make it. I think Pepe could make it. I think I could see a reality where Tillman doesn't. Now that I'm running this scenario through my head. <laughs> because, again, Jay, Kellen Acosta can play as a number eight. But the United States, I don't know, they, well, they, they don't play with, they, when they played with four strikers, they had two strikers, they played, they brought four. Because 2010, it was Altador, Finley, Edson Buttle, and Hercules Gomez. Who is the first player I think of when they, I see those Waldo jerseys. And left wing, finally left wing, uh, Pulisic and Aronson. I think Jordan Morris could get a shout because I think Jordan Morris is playing very, very well. He's a very good player for Seattle Sounders. Brings a lot of pace to the left side. He's a natural striker, which is something the other two don't have. It's like we brought up with Tim Weah earlier. Like, Areola and Reyna are natural strikers, so Weah will be more direct. That's how Morris is with this. Pulisic and Aronson are both creators. Morris, Morris is more of a goal scorer. He's faster. More of a goal scorer, natural striker, moved over to the wing. But uh yeah, I don't I don't think he'll make it. So I'm gonna go with Pulisic and Aronson. I don't need to explain that one. I, I feel kind of bad for Aronson because he's the super sub for the United States. I think he's better than I think he's better than all the right wingers the United States has right now. But the problem is Greg Berhalter really likes coming him coming off the bench. He said that a few times that he likes using him as a super sub. Because he brings that extra spark. So 
yeah, that is my World Cup squad. So recap of the squad, we got Ethan Horvath, Zach Steffen, and Matt Turner in net with Turner starting. Right backs, we got Reggie Cannon, Serginio Dest, Joe Scaly, and DeAndre Yedlin with Serginio Dest starting. Center backs, we got Cameron Carter-Vickers, Aaron Long, Chris Richards, and Walker Zimmerman with Zimmerman and Long starting. Left backs, we got Anthony Robinson, and then Joe Scaly will be the backup, but just the one left back. Defensive midfielders, we got Kellen Acosta and Tyler Adams. Central midfielders, we've got Luca De La Torre, Weston McKinney, Jonas Musa, and Malik Tillman with Musa and McKinney starting. Right wingers, we got Paul Ariola, Giovanni Reina, and Tim Weah with, geez, sorry, with Weah being the starter. Strikers, we got Jesus Ferrer, Jordan Pifok, and Josh Sargent with Ferrer starting. And then left wingers, Brendan Aronson and Christian Pulisic with Captain Pulisic starting. I think it's just between Pulisic and Tyler Adams for the captaincy. I think both are very good. I think both are very good options. Pool six more of the follow me and all all lead by example type thing. Adams is more of the reserved leader, but a great leader nonetheless. Like Pool six will step up in the big occasions because he's more natural to do that because he's a winger. But Berlder's never nailed down a captain. It's rotated every single time he's been out. He's never named one. I don't know if that will change for the World Cup. I would imagine it's just going to be those two. But I could see like where Walker's and Rimmons a captain. I don't know about Weston McKinney. I listed him down below as a possible one, but I think Weston McKinney kind of burnt that bridge. I think Walker Zimmerman's probably the number three option as captain, I think. And Stefan's going to be up there as well, but Stefan's not going to, in my opinion, not going to start. So that's what we got for the 2022 World Cup squad. Good Lord, this took an hour. Good Lord, this took an hour. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was not expecting that at all. Oh, it's Steven Gerrard just got fired as Aston Villa manager. Oh, man, that's too bad. That is too bad. Oh, man, I'm, I'm getting sick of this. I'm get, I'm stuck in the... I'm getting so many political ads right now on my phone. Like, I get texts from different political groups. Like, I don't care. I really don't care. You texting me is going to make me hate you more because I don't... I don't you're, you're bothering me while I'm doing a really important show. We're done with the United States World, World, Cup, World Cup Squad. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But moving on swiftly, try to get over everything else pretty fast. Start with college football. I think this is important. I think it's important. Iowa versus Ohio State has now upped its line to 30. 30 points. This is Iowa. This is this is not like Indiana or Rutgers. This is freaking Iowa who's supposed to have some sort of self-respect. <laughs> 30 points. And you know what? I don't think that's wrong. I think Ohio State will absolutely blitz Iowa on Saturday. I've seen all the videos on Twitter this week about Iowa beating Ohio State. Like, what was it? 50, whatever it was. Woodshed back in Iowa City a few years ago when they beat JT Barrett. And the Ohio State Buckeyes, Nick Bosa got ejected for targeting. Chase Young was there. Good Ohio State team. This Ohio State team's better. This Ohio State team, in my opinion, is the best team in college football. And unless Iowa surprisingly upsets them, I really don't see a reality where Ohio State doesn't make the playoff. Because you look at the rest of Ohio State's schedule, it's not like it's very maneuverable. It's very maneuverable. Like you got Iowa at home. Now Penn State will be tough. Penn State will be tough. But no, apart from running the ball, I don't really fear Penn State that much. Like you saw what Michigan just did to them. I don't think Michigan will be that tough of a game for them. I don't think they'll get beat by Michigan again, especially with it being at home this time. They're going to be motivated going into this year. I don't think Michigan's going to beat them. 
I think Ohio State is very, very good on both sides of the football. Like, we've already looked over their stats. Like, Ohio State defensively gives up 15 points a game. Iowa gives up 9.8, and everybody talks about how good Iowa's defense is. And that is more of a a testament to how bad Iowa's offense is because you don't even think about Ohio State's defense. You don't even think about Ohio State's defense. The first thing you think about Ohio State is their offense. Their defense, statistically, is better than Iowa's. Statistically, it is better than the Iowa Hawkeyes' defense. And they've played Notre Dame week one. They played Wisconsin. They played Rutgers. They played Michigan State. Like, Iowa's played Rutgers. There's a common opponent right now. I know they played Arkansas State and Toledo, but statistically, they're doing well. They're doing very well. They give up 11 less yards a game than Iowa. 11 less. And Iowa is not playing a murderer's row of teams either. They played Michigan close because Michigan's a run-based team, solid defense. Iowa can't get anything going against solid defense. They didn't do anything. But, like, they, didn't, they haven't played a murderer's row of teams. I know South Dakota State's the number one team in the FCS, but come on. Nevada, yeah, 27-0. You beat them by 27 points. In a game at, like, how bad Nevada is this year, I mean, how miserable. They're 2-5. and five. They just got blasted 31-16 to 16 by Hawaii. They lost to Colorado State. Arguably the two worst teams in college football they lost to. Colorado State and Hawaii. Iowa beat them 27-0, which is a reasonable score. Reasonable score. You should really be beating teams like that, like Ohio State beat Toledo 77-21. You have to beat them like that. Iowa's offense is so bad. And I've talked about this before. I think we've talked about this game for about two weeks now because it's it's scary. It scares me. Not necessarily the fact that I think I'm nervous for this game. Unlike that, no, I'm nervous about like not nervous like oh my god I'm I'm not I'm gonna lose sleep over this game, not that nervous. It's more of a nervous like I don't know. You understand what I'm talking about? I can't really explain it. Like I'm not nervous because I think Iowa's gonna like this is gonna be a close game and I think Iowa can upset them. No, I'm not nervous like that. I'm nervous because I think Ohio State will blitz them by sixty. I don't think Iowa will score. Iowa might get a field goal if they get some miracle interception, but. Unless the defense goes buck wild and they get like four interceptions, they ain't coming close in this game. Iowa, and this isn't even just on Petrus offensively. Like the old line's not going to be able to hold back anybody. Zach Harrison for Ohio State's one of the best edge rushers in college football. Unless he's not playing, which would be a beautiful thing. But Ohio State is not going to really struggle that much here. Iowa and Wisconsin are two of the one of the same. Very similar teams. Both have quarterbacks that were supposed to be good, aren't. Both are trying to be run-first teams. Now, Wisconsin's got a better running back in Braylon Allen than Allen, than Iowa does. Iowa's running backs are fine, but Iowa's rush offense is not very good because the O-line's not very good. And then defensively, Wisconsin's always good. Always good. And they allowed Ohio State to score 52 points. Iowa scores 14 points a game. They give up 9.8, so basically 10. They are not holding Ohio State to 10 points. The two games they have scored over 20 points in was Rutgers and Nevada. Two teams that are not very good. Not very good. And they scored 27 both times. No disrespect to Illinois. You scored six points against Illinois. Scored six. And screw you, Illinois. You beat Iowa. Yeah, that's fine. But you could at least covered. 
You could have at least covered, right? You you won by three. You were supposed to win by four. Idiots. But, yeah. I don't know is that, if Jackson Smith and Jigba is supposed to play or not. I haven't seen anything about Jackson Smith and Jigba. So I don't know what his full timetable is at this point in time. Is he, ret- is he returning? J- Jackson Smith and Jigba is back this weekend. Yeah. That's fun. What a great game for him to come back in, right? What a great game for their best receiver to come back with Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Abuka balling out the way they are. That's fun. That's really, really fun. Without Jackson Smith and Jigba, C.J. Stroud has 1,700 yards, 24 touchdowns. Spencer Peters has 21 touchdowns and 25 starts at Iowa. Or maybe it's 25 touchdowns and 21 starts. Regardless, in one season, Stroud's either four better or three better or one worse. Then Spencer Peters has been his entire Iowa career. Regardless, either way, it's not good. In Ohio State, again, if you stop the receivers, which is easier said than done, they've got two really good running backs, Mean Williams and Travion Henderson. Henderson's been in and out of line. He's battled some injuries this year, but he's very good. He's very good. Dalen, Dalen Harlan, <laughs> Dalen, Dalen Hayden is also very talented running back. Like Julian Fleming, we didn't even mention Julian Fleming, Cade Strover, Stover. Those two, very good wideouts. Very big red zone targets for Ohio State. But Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ogbuka are playing ridiculous right now. Emeka Ogbuka has like an odd thing happen every single game. But other than that, very talented. And then Jackson with the Jigba's played one game. He's had four catches this year. And even play in the one game, really, because he had a hamstring injury. He might have played two. He might have played. I think he might have seen action at some other point, but not very long. But imagine going into Ohio State, knowing that you're going to get your ass kicked, and then you're like, oh, this couldn't get much worse. Oh, uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba's back. That's fun. That's really fun. The last game he played fully, what did he have? Six touchdowns against Utah? Four? What did he have? Some crazy number against Utah? Like I respect the hell out of Iowa's defense. I respect the hell out of Iowa's special teams. But this is a situation where you're trying to keep up with a Lamborghini and a Volkswagen Beetle. Like, it's not, they're not even that. One of those, uh, like a shopping cart. That's probably what this is it. Like a Lamborghini versus a shopping cart offensively. Like, sure, the shopping cart could get going pretty fast going down a hill. But when you're on the road, you're going uphill. The shopping cart's not going to move very far. You can put a nice little wall there. But the thing is with Iowa and Ohio State, so that's what we're dealing with offensively. But if you're going like just in the speed of the offenses and stuff like that. But if you're going with the defense, you got a brick wall for both of them. Both of them are very good defense. Brick walls for both of them. Ohio State's got a freaking, like, what, is it, what are those things called? Wrecking ball. They got a wrecking ball. And Iowa's trying to take down the defense with a baseball bat. What's going to tear down the wall faster? A wrecking ball or a wooden baseball bat? And not a real wooden baseball bat. Like a tiny one that you get from like a baseball game as a souvenir. One of those tiny ones that's about like a foot long. You know what I'm talking about? One of those baseball bats. Like Iowa's defense can hold them back for as long as they want. Once Ohio State gets going, Iowa's not going to be able to keep up offensively. That's the problem. You saw Michigan State do that last year. Michigan State was a top 10 program 
you can't keep up with a pass-first offense like Ohio State when your defense stinks and you have no run. You only run the ball. Iowa's defense doesn't stink, and they might have Ohio State early because the past few games this year, Ohio State has started off relatively slow, where they give their opponents seemingly a chance to be in the game, but then all of a sudden, with a blink of the eye, it's like, oh, Ohio State's winning by thirty points. Like I, I like the like the idea of having the bye week before Ohio State's nice, but then realizing Ohio State also has a bye week and has a week to get their best receiver back and healthy, that's scary. So on one hand, I'm upset that this is the quote unquote big noon kickoff game. But on the other hand, I'm happy that I just give it out of the way. If this was at Iowa, I could see some sort of delusional reality where people are like oh, Iowa's going to win this game and kind of understand where they're getting at because Kinnick's a tough place to play, especially if it's a night game. This is not Kinnick. This is a bigger stadium and arguably a tougher place to play in the horseshoe in Columbus, Ohio. Bigger stadium, more hostile, arguably. Because I know how Kinnick is to away fans. I understand that. It's going to be long. It's just going to be a long morning. And thankfully, it's in the morning. This is why I'm happy because it'll just get over. I'll just get it out of the way. I don't need to worry about sitting there and wasting my evening watching Iowa and Ohio State. If Iowa wins this game, good Lord, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do if Iowa somehow manages to pull this one off. This will be one of the greatest upsets of all time. 30 points on the road with Iowa's offense beating Ohio State's offense. It's crazy to me. That's absolutely crazy to me. If that happens, that is the craziest outcome I've ever seen in college football. And I watched Appalachian State beat Michigan. I watched that game. Watched them block the field goal and everything. Like, that was insane. That would be crazier. That was, that was the first time Michigan ever lost to an FCS school. Was that one game. And Iowa beating Ohio State, in my opinion, is crazier than that happening. That's how little faith I have in this. I'm not going to rule out Iowa completely, though it might sound like I am. I would give Iowa a 1% chance to win. Like, ESPN's not even giving Iowa a 1% chance to win. Oh, no, they did. They raised it. 4.5%. I, uh, no, I was looking at another game earlier. It was like 0.6%. I think I was looking at a different game. Okay, four, you know what? We'll give them a 4 point, We'll give them a 4% chance to win. We'll give him a four point. Four uh five. Five's a nice I like ninety-five to five. I think that's I think that's fun. It looks more it's more aesthetically pleasing to go by fives and fours. It's just it just makes me feel better. Uh I mean, if you have faith going into this game, I, I wish I had your optimism. I wish I possessed some sort of optimism to go like, yeah, I agree with you. And then would also be those same people like, man, this offense won ten games last year. They might win five. And it's not going to change next year. Because Iowa's not going to go to the transfer portal. After watching all these transfer quarterbacks play very, very well, Iowa ain't going to get one of them. Like, wouldn't it have been cool if Iowa managed to get Hendon Hooker when he transferred? Wouldn't that have been pretty fun? Wouldn't that have been fun? Hendon Hooker, one of the favorites to win the Heisman Trophy right now. And they're playing UT Martin this week. So Tennessee's got a nice, hopefully for them, I don't want to look past Tennessee Martin at all. Because they're 4-2 and two right now. Four and two, in-state right? UT. That's Tennessee Martin, right? Not Texas Martin. I think it's Tennessee Martin. <laughs> I don't want to look past Tennessee Martin for Tennessee, but I think they should breeze past them. 
Does ESPN even have a match? Okay, that was the game I was looking at earlier. They have, Tennessee Martin has a, a 0.6% chance to win this game. Yeah, I think Tennessee will have a fun one there. You got Syracuse-Clemson, which should be pretty fun. Syracuse undefeated. Clemson undefeated. Sean Tucker, one of the best running backs in college football, balling out this year. DJ Uyagalele is playing really well for Clemson. 17 touchdowns, only one pick this year. Very nice season for him. Getting himself back into the draft conversation. We got Cincinnati-SMU. Should be pretty fun. Ole Miss-LSU. UCLA oregon Ooh, that'd be fun. That's a fun one. Chip Kelly going back to Oregon. That's a fun one. That's very fun. Texas versus Okie State. Boston College, Wake Forest. Memphis-Tulane. Tulane's in the top 25? What the hell? I, even, I did not know that. That's awesome. Uh, Mississippi State versus Alabama. That could be fun. Could be. I don't know if it will be, but it could be fun. Uh, Mississippi, and then we got Minnesota, Penn State, and Kansas State, TCU. Iowa State's on a bye week. So we're not going to talk about Iowa State. Sorry, Iowa State fans out there. I, you and I is playing Missouri State. That's going to be a very interesting game. You and I got a very big win. I, I say really big. It wasn't a big win like, oh, it's surprising. It's a big win in the fact that they needed it against 10, Utah Tech. They needed that win. It's an easy game. They should have won easily, and they did. That's a game. Like, they, You and I has played a lot better than 3-4 and four this year. They played a lot better than 3-4. and four. In my opinion. In my opinion. I could be I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But from what I've seen, Theo Day's played really well. Dom Williams has played really well. The run game's played really well. Sam Sna- Sam Snay Schnee has played really well at wideout. Running back playing wideout this year. It's playing good. Leading the Panthers receiving this year. It's fun. So while we're talking about college football, Tom has tasked me again with uh making his picks. And I don't like doing this. I really don't like doing this anymore. Like, I like to think that I'm pretty competent in regards to calling it. Good Lord, I got two. I got two more political text messages. This is annoying. Delete. Stop texting me. This is not helping your cause here. It's not helping your cause. But uh, Tom has tasked me to do this again. Tom has tasked me. I don't know why he's continuing to task me to do this because I'm doing absolutely terrible. And I'm I'm terrible because I'm not confident. I'm not confident in any of these games I'm picking and it's freaking awful. Come on, load the load the pictures in. Is this it right here? For some reason it just threw it right to the top of my camera roll. Yeah, why okay, I don't understand that one. So we'll go over the the bigger games first. We'll hit the smaller games last. Okay, make sure I got my marker out. Okay. So Iowa, Ohio State, I'm picking the Buckeyes. I'm not really thinking about that one. I, I could be wrong, but I'm not really thinking about it. It's going to be rough. It's just going to be a rough one. Next one, we have got Miami and Duke. I'm going to take the Hurricanes. Trevor Tyler Van Dyke played really well last week against Virginia Tech. I think Miami can beat Duke. Duke's not that great. Then we've got Texas and Oklahoma State. I'm going to pick the Cowboys. It's at, it's at Okie State. I think they can cover. I do like Texas. Texas is a 6.5 point favorite. I'm going to pick the Cowboys. I'm going to pick the Cowboys. Then we've got Wisconsin and Purdue. Again, this is what we talked about before. Wisconsin's got a very solid defense. Purdue's offense is fairly solid. Wisconsin's got a better offense than Iowa. They're averaging 31 points a game. I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick Purdue. Going on the road. I'm going to pick Purdue. Not even think. I'm going to pick UCLA over Oregon. Chip Kelly's revenge game. LSU Ole Miss. I'm going to pick Ole Miss in that one. 
Ole Miss is the dog in that one. Tulane Memphis, again, like we said before, with their choke choke artist game against Houston. I'm not picking Memphis the rest of the year, so we're picking Tulane. Don't even need to look at the line. Then we've got BYU and Liberty. That's going to be a tough game for BYU. That is a very tough game for BYU, especially with it being on the road. But I am probably going to pick BYU. It's a conference game. You can call it that, I guess, because both of them are independents. So I don't know. I, I think I'm going to pick I'm going to pick BYU. It's going to be close. I'm not confident in picking BYU. What's the line at? Seven? I'm going to pick the Cougs. They've lost two in a row to Notre Dame and Arkansas. Yeah, I'm going to pick BYU. I'm going to go with Jaron Hall. That's the main. That's the only real reason why I'm picking that. I'm picking Jaron Hall. Arizona State, Stanford, like we said before, Stanford can keep up with almost every team in college football. It's just a matter of they can they stop them. That's a big issue. Alabama, Mississippi State, weird, again, a weird one. Mississippi State's coming off a pretty weird game against Kentucky last week. Pretty weird one. Like, they had less than 100 yards of offense for the first time since 2020, Mississippi State. I don't think Mississippi State will win, but I feel like 21 points is a bit disrespectful given how good Mississippi State's offense is. And even their defense has been playing all right this year. Them and Alabama give a rope around the same amount of points. So that one I feel is a little bit disrespectful, but I'm going to skip that one for now. Boise State, Air Force, uh, Boise State is not really that great against the run. Like, you remember last year we talked about Boise State against the run? All the games where they played a top-level rush attack or had a running back get over 100 yards, they lost the game. Like, they give up 100 yards a game on the ground, which isn't a ton, isn't a ton, but they haven't played an offense like Air Force. They haven't played an offense like Air Force. I know, like, San Diego State runs the ball quite a bit, but San Diego State's not very good this year. I don't know what's going on with San Diego State. Then we've got, what's the next one? TCU and Kansas State. TCU and Kansas State. Do I go with the Iowa again Picks Max. pick Max Duggan? Do I pick Max Duggan? I'm going to pick Max Duggan. It's at TCU. I'm going to pick Max Duggan. Louisville and Pitt? Ugh. Well, Washington Cal. I'm going to go with Washington. I like Michael Penix. He's had a very nice career resurgence at Washington. Oh, no. I'm looking around. I'm looking around my list. I want to make sure I've got the... Okay, let's go back to the first page. I don't know why Tom makes me do this. This is cruel and unusual punishment. This makes me question myself. I don't really like it. I might request to stop doing this because I keep getting worse and worse. I got eight right last week. Eight. Eight. You heard that right. Eight Eight right. Western Kentucky UAB, it's a very similar-ish game. I think Western Kentucky is going to win. I'm going to pick them because it's at Western Kentucky. Clemson, Syracuse, 13 points. 13 and a half is the line for this one. I feel like that's a little mean to Syracuse, especially with them being undefeated. And Clemson's had very weird encounters with Syracuse. I'm going to go with Syracuse covering. Though it's at Clemson, I'm going to give them covering. I don't think they'll win, but I think they can lose by 10. I think Syracuse can lose by 10. Just given how good they are running the ball, Garrett Schrader's played really well this year as well. They've got, uh, like, I like I like Syracuse, but I don't, I don't think they'll win, but I'll pick them. Then we've got Baylor, Kansas. This one, I'm not, I don't know what to pick, so I'm just going to pick Baylor because I was at their stadium last week. That's what we're doing. So I feel like I've, I blessed them this week, hopefully. Hopefully I blessed them. Next one, we got Cincinnati versus SMU. We kind of talked about this game earlier. Cincinnati's a three-point favorite. I'm going to go with Cincy. 
I'm going to go with Cincy because SMU can't stop anybody. Like, SMU gives up 29 points a game. They give up 432 yards of total offense. I'm going to go with SMU. I'm going to go with Cincinnati. They're a three and a half, though it's on the road. I'm going to go with that. I like Tanner Mordecai for SMU, but that's about where my allegiances lie with SMU. Then we got Houston and Navy. Houston's the team that came back against Memphis a couple weeks ago. Navy's fresh off a loss to SMU. We were in Texas for that one. We were playing mini golf while that game was going on. We were an hour away from the game. We could have just gone to the game. Could have just gone to the game. Man. So, Houston gives up a lot of points. Who do I want to pick in this one? I like Toon. I like their quarterback. I like SMU's quarterback. I grew up liking Navy a lot. I grew up liking Navy a lot. I'm going to go with Houston. I am going to go with Houston in the end. I'm going to go with Houston. Toledo and Buffalo? Well, the Bills are on a bye week this week. So I, I, I feel like I have to pick Buffalo in something, right? I have to pick Buffalo in something. They're 4-3 and three right now. They're at home. They're a seven-point dog to Toledo, who scores a lot of points. 38 points a game. I'm going to pick Buffalo just for pride. I mean, I got I, the Bills aren't playing, so I'm going to pick them. Texas Tech versus West Virginia. Texas Tech did beat uh, Texas a few weeks ago, which is fairly impressive. West Virginia did just beat Baylor, which is also very impressive. I'm going to go with the Red Raiders. Texas Tech has been very competitive this year. I'm going to go with the Red Raiders. And this is one of those things where you're looking at a test. I picked a lot of away teams in a row. That made me feel uncomfortable to have that many away games. That could be the wrong way of thinking. BY or James Madison versus Marshall. FCS powerhouses back in the day. That's James Madison a few years ago. Marshall about 20 years ago. Going to go with the, the Dukes of James Madison. Played you and I in the playoffs. Though that is a big line. That is a big line. Do I want to stick... Do I want to keep SMU in that? Or SMU, James Madison. What conference are they in? Why am I not finding them? What conference are they even in? Are they independent? I can't think of what conference they are in. Why is this game not popping up anywhere? What what is going on? Do they cease to exist now? Do they Oh there they are. 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 Now James Madison is coming off a tough loss to Georgia Southern. Lost by seven points last week to Georgia Southern. Tough, tough game. James Madison's averaging 519 yards a game on offense. I'm going to go with the Dukes. They're at home. James Madison's been blowing teams out all year apart from Appy State and then Georgia Southern, obviously. So we're going to go with the Dukes and just the name alone. I like both names, the Thundering Herd and the Dukes. Very solid names. Very, very solid names. I'm going to go to Alabama-Mississippi State last. Penn State Minnesota, what are we looking at for that game? Penn State's a four-point favorite in this game. It's at Penn State. Two very similar teams. I, I, My mind is still trying to get off what I saw last week against Michigan. Like, they had one first down in the first half, and it was a 60-something-yard touchdown run by Sean Clifford. Like, they couldn't do anything. And the fact that they were down by two at half and at one point winning the game, 17-16, to 16, is ridiculous. But like both teams have good running backs. Both teams do got good running backs. Singleton for Penn State, Ibrahim from Minnesota. You know what? We're going to pick it like this. 
Uh, I was going to pick on which team I dislike more. I dislike Minnesota a whole hell of a lot more than Penn State. My friend Drew just got married last week. So he's a Penn State fan. His mom's from, from there, so that's why he's a Penn State fan. It's not random. Who am I going to pick in this one? Govers have lost two straight. Penn State's lost one straight. <laughs> Minnesota's a lot better defense than Penn State's. I don't know who to go with in this one. Tanner Morgan might be out. For Minnesota, that could be big. He's not ruled out yet. He's not ruled out officially yet. We're going to go with Penn State. I can't pick Minnesota. I'm not picking Minnesota. That'll come back to bite me because the the football gods are watching me and they'll go, what? Just because you did that, you're no longer winning this game. You're no longer getting the spread here. Then we got Texas A&M, South Carolina. Terrible game. Terrible ass game. I do not want to watch this for the life of me. This is going to be miserable. Like, ten, geez, Spencer Riley's got five touchdowns and eight picks. I didn't even realize that. I know South Carolina beat Kentucky, but Will Levis didn't play, so I don't really count that. <laughs> I do, but I don't at the same time. AM versus South Carolina. I don't like either team. Oh my god, I hate this. I hate doing this. What do you think? <laughs> what do you what do all you guys think out there? What do you guys think out there? South Carolina on a nice three-game win streak after losing two of their first three. You know what? You know what? You know what? I am... Oh, my God. I'm going to pick... South Carolina. I'm going to pick a dog. Pick South Carolina. Don't have any reason for it. Just don't, don't ask. Don't ask. We got USF, UCF, UCF, UCF taking on East Carolina. UCF's a five-point favorite in this game. Yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with UCF. Jeez, I'm gonna go UCF. Even though East Carolina did beat Memphis last week, nice revenge game. I am gonna go with UCF in this one. And then we got Louisville taking on Pitt. I mean, in years past, that would have been a pretty fun game. Not really right now. Malik Cunningham's not really playing that great. Louisville is coming off a win against Virginia. They've rotated wins over the last five games. They've won three, lost two. Pitt is on the road. Pitt is a better overall team, I would imagine. I'll pick Pitt. Confidence level at an all-time low. And then Alabama-Mississippi State is just... That's a big line. I feel like Alabama will be pissed off going into this game because they just lost to Tennessee. And Mississippi State's coming off a really not great performance against Kentucky. I know they scored 17 points, but it's not great. If you hold them to under 20, hell, if you hold them to under 35, you're, you're gonna you're gonna lose. You're gonna beat them. Uh, I think Alabama being pissed off is gonna be massive in this. 21's a lot of points. 21 is a lot of points. I'm gonna go with Alabama. I'm not confident in that. I picked two games with a combined spread of freaking third. What was it? 51 points. Alabama and Ohio State. That makes me feel weird inside. That makes me feel very, very weird. 
But there's good games this week. There's really good games this week. I don't. I hope those picks are somewhat accurate. I don't think they will be. I don't think they will be. Knock on wood, they will be. But I don't think they will. Let's go over to the NFL real quick before we get into our draft thing. We got Cardinals Saints Thursday Night Football, which should be kind of fun. At least it it should be more fun than what we've been fed the past two weeks with the Colts Broncos and the the Bears Commanders. <laughs> it's got to be somewhat better than that, right? Then on Sunday, we've got the Falcons Bengals, which surprisingly could be pretty fun. We got Lions Cowboys. We got Colts Titans Packers Commanders. Buccaneers, Panthers, Giants, Jaguars, Ravens, Browns. Then we got the Chargers, Seahawks. We got the Jets, Broncos, Texans, Raiders, Chiefs, Niners, which could be kind of fun. And then Steelers, Dolphins. Sunday Night Football. What a great game. What a great game. And then Monday night, great football game. We have got the Bears and Patriots. What a fun weekend of football. <laughs> Uh, but the Bills are on a bye week, so you know what? I, I've got to watch it. So I got to get my football. T- I got to get football in. I'll watch it. I won't enjoy it, but I'll watch it. Ooh, it's Terrence Crawford to roll Spence. Now we're probably at a target date, but February fourth. That's gonna be. It's gonna be awesome if it when it happens. When it happens, not if it happens. When it happens. Now, before we end off the show, I want to go over our week seven quarterback prospect rankings. Then we'll end the show. We have almost gone to two uh, hour and a half. Hour and a half. I thought we were gonna be at two hours. Hour and a half. But we might push closer to two hours with this. So here is the draft experts. That's me. Air quotes on expert. 2023 NFL Draft Week 7 quarterback prospect rankings. Number one, still C.J. Stroud. Didn't play, but he's had a very good year. He's had a very good year. I don't think that the other people behind him did enough to pass him right now. I think he can get passed. I'm not saying he's locked into number one for the rest of the season, but he... It's looking. He's looking like the number one pick, at least first quarterback off the board at this point. I think he could get passed by Levis or Young here in a little bit, but I could see it. I could see it, but right now he's number one. Number two, still Bryce Young. Though they lost in a very close game. Again, like we said before, it's the first time a team that scored four, a top three team that scored 49 points in the game has lost in like 780 attempts. Which is ridiculous. Bryce Young, you can see his importance to Alabama's offense when he plays. So... Like, Jalen Milrow, I think he could become a very nice quarterback at Alabama. I think he'd be very nice. They're not in this game at all if Bryce Young's not playing. There were things he did in this game that I don't think any other quarterback in college football can really do. The play that always sticks out to me with Bryce, well, there's two of them, rolling out to his right and then just slams on the brakes. Defenders fly past me, delivers a strike over the middle of the field. So I think Jermaine Burton. It was Jermaine Burton's or Corey Brooks. I don't remember which one caught the ball. And then he had the play in the red zone that resulted in the pass interference where he rolled out to the left, scrambled around a little bit, and then threw the ball towards the end zone. Bryce Young keeps Alabama in games. This is not the greatest Alabama team of all time. This Alabama offense, apart from Young and Jameer Gibbs, is not really that spectacular, being honest. I like Cameron Ladu. I like some of the receivers they have. Tyler Harrell hasn't played all year, so that's kind of a big loss for them. But Bryce Young makes this team go. And when he's not playing, you see his importance. Like against Texas A&M, him not playing was massive. Jalen Miller did not necessarily have a bad game. He didn't play great, but he didn't have a terrible, terrible game. But Bryce Young is, I would probably leverage to say, the best quarterback in Alabama history. Is that a crazy thing to say? He's the first ever quarterback to win a Heisman at Alabama. I'm just talking strictly college level. 
So I know people are going to throw like Bart Starr and Joe Namath and all those guys, like Ken Stabler, but at least in recent memory, Bryce Young is by far the best quarterback of all time at Alabama. And it's games like this where they're not in the game. Alabama's not in the game. And then Bryce Young just claws his way back. Coming off a shoulder injury to throw 455 yards on 52 attempts is ridiculous. He's coming off a bad shoulder. Throwing shoulder, no less. And he still does that and keeps them in the game. Thought they won the game. Once Alabama recovered the fumble, the, the mesh key fumble by Tennessee and brought it back for a touchdown, thought they won the game. In front of an extremely hostile environment, yeah, they probably thought they won. But ultimately they did not because Reichard missed a field goal, which has been a thing this entire year for whatever reason. He's usually one of the best kickers in college football. Missed some key field goals this year. Uh, number three, still Will Levis. Without him, Kentucky's nothing. It's a very similar situation to what Bryce Young is at Alabama, except there's less playmakers at Kentucky than there are at Alabama. I think Chris Rodriguez is very good, the running back. But other than that, like they've got some decent young players like Dane Key's pretty solid at wide receiver. But without Levis, that team doesn't do anything. Levis gets hit so much. Their O-line is terrible. Their O-line is terrible. And Will Levis has an extremely strong arm and is very aware of everything going on around him. There was one play in the game where Levis is rolling out to the right. Pocket collapse, or not rolling out, but the pocket collapses around him. He's getting tackled and sidearms it in between the tackles to his running back, who picked up a 20-yard game. Like, and people want to t- to bash checkdowns. And they're, it's not really like the most glamorous thing in the world because most of your yards on that play come from the run after the catch. So it can be bloating a lot of yards that you have. But they're smart. When you have no time to do anything, you get a little antsy. And then when you have the pocket collapsing around you, you got a guy there, you'd be stupid not to throw it to that guy. Like Levis had some throws down the sidelines in this game, but they weren't good throws. Like they got to the target. Like there was one play he had. I don't remember who it was to. Was it Barry and Brown? Might have been Barry and Brown. Trying to remember. Oh, Dekel Crowdis. Dekel Crowdis. Hit him down the left sideline, the far sideline. Wide open. Wide open. Underthrew him, though. And he looks like rookie Josh Allen to a certain extent in regards to he's trying, or second year Josh Allen, second year Josh Allen, where he's trying to figure out the touch on his deep ball because he's got a very strong arm, but he doesn't want to overthrow anybody. And what they always tell you in quarterback school is. As long don't overthrow him. Underthrowing it's fine because the receiver can always work back to it. It's not going to be the prettiest throw every single time, but underthrowing it allows him to work back. You can't speed up. Once you've reached top speed, you can't go past it. That's top speed. You ain't going past that. So they always say if you don't think you're going to hit them, underthrow it. Allow the receiver to work back for it. That's what Levis did a couple times this game. There was one play he had threw a beautiful ball down the, the near sideline. I think that one was to Barry and Brown. And he got slammed on his shoulder. Had to leave the game for a little bit, came back in. Like, it's plays like that where it's like, okay, this dude's tough. This dude can be the guy. And I think there's a, again, we've talked about this before. I think Levis will probably, could very well be the first quarterback off the board in the draft. I could see him playing for Carolina. I could see him being a Carolina Panther. I I think his combination of size and athletic ability is very good. But I think number four, Anthony Richardson, is that level higher. 
And Anthony Richardson, we brought up Josh Allen, Will Levis. Anthony Richardson's this version, this year's version of Josh Allen. In regards to, there is so much potential there. He's not putting it all together at a consistent basis in college, but you could see it. Like what we talked about with the Eastern Washington game, remember that one a few weeks ago when he played on a Sunday? They ran the exact same play, the first pass play of the game against LSU on Saturday, resulted in the exact same thing. They're rarely, it's very rare to have a quarterback that can just flick his wrist and the ball travels 60 yards. Like, I know we watch like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers. We see these quarterbacks all the time do it and we think it's just normal. No, that's not normal. That's not normal to do that. I know they make it look normal and look effortless, which it is for them, but that's not a normal, that is an anomaly that that's happening. And Anthony Richardson is on that level in regards to just natural talent in regards to throwing the ball. He throws the ball better. He throws, he has the strongest arm in this draft. I almost said best deep ball. I've said Hennon Hooker's got the best deep ball in this draft. Natural deep ball. It's rarely, he overthrew a guy last week. He overthrew a dude last week in the end zone, but he had five touchdowns and three of them were 30, 35, 40 plus yards out. Beautiful throws. We'll get Hennon Hooker's at number five. There's no secret there. And I didn't really think about this, but Hendon Hooker is going to be 25 when he gets drafted. 25. I didn't think about that until today. I saw someone talk about that. I got an email about it, actually. <laughs> Weirdly enough, I got an email about it. And Hooker, yeah, he is turning 25 in January. So, sadly, I'm older than him. And he's considered old. Uh, does that make me old? I turned 25 in two weeks. Three weeks. That's sad. It's very depressing. Yeah, exactly. Three weeks. And uh, he's considered old. I think Hendon Hooker, so we brought this up on Wednesday. Zach asked me if Hendon Hooker was a top five pick. I said no, not at the time. And I think him being 25, which I didn't even think about, even though I should have thought about it because he transferred and is a grad student right now. So I should have that should have registered that he's going to be older. But for whatever reason, didn't. And um, I think it'll be a first-round pick. I don't think there's really any question about that. I think the system they run at Tennessee also kind of hurts to a certain extent. We talked about that Wednesday. If you want to hear it again, go back to Wednesday. But the short, the quick notes version of it, Tennessee's offense runs really fast. Doesn't allow him to read the defense, so people will question his ability to read defense and stuff like that. That's what they're going to say. That's not my words. That's how they're viewing it in the NFL. Because you saw what happened to Matt Corral last year. That's the same exact thing that hurt Matt Corral in the draft process last year. Tennessee has a top five offense in regards to speed on how fast they run things. And that's when the ball is set and they snap it. That They run it in like three seconds. Like, it's fast. There's no pre-snap reads. It's just call, play, go. That's what Tennessee does. And that will hurt. And then him being 25, that also hurts. But this also gives a team that needs a quarterback to play right away, that would give them that option because he doesn't need to really need that learning curve. And he is one of the favorites, if not the current favorite for the Heisman Trophy. But in regards to Richardson, why he's still above them is this that natural ability. Is this that natural ability. That first throw he had down the side, down the middle of the field on that rollout was beautiful. And then he had an 81-yard touchdown run later in the game when they were down by 21 points. 42-21 was the score at the time. He scored an 81-yard touchdown run. He's 6'4", 230, 235 pounds. When a guy like that's running towards you, why would you try to tackle him up top? At full speed, you are not tackling Anthony Richardson on the shoulders. You're tackling Anthony Richardson on the ankles. 
you can't, you're not going to bring him down tackling him up high. That's not going to happen. Low man wins. It's one of the oldest sayings in football. Low man wins. With a guy that big and that fast, you're not tackling him up high. He broke like four or five arm tackles on his way in the 81-yard touchdown. And it wasn't like at the line of scrimmage. He was on the opposite 30 and then started getting touched and then powered his way in. Now, I'm not, this is going to sound like an old cranky grandpa. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of him diving into the end zone when he's all by himself and then celebrating like crazy when you're down by 21 points. Maybe, now I I can understand. I'm not sitting here and saying that's a bad thing. I'm not a fan of it, but I could see like, oh, this could be a motivator. This could be motivation. The crowd's amped up. Andy Richardson's amped up. It could be a good thing, but that's just, uh, I always have a hard time with people celebrating like freaking crazy when your team's losing by 20 plus points. But again, that's very nitpicky of me. I sound like an 80 year old, but I'm not going to critique it that much because I think he played a decent game. He still is inconsistent as hell, but when you have things click for him, there's not a lot of better quarterbacks in college football and there's not a lot of better quarterbacks in the draft. So his college numbers might not be that great. But I think people can see that there. He's not going to play right away. I don't. I don't think it'd be smart to have him play right away. But I said the same thing with Josh Allen. Josh Allen played. His, he started his second ever game in the NFL. He was forced to come in his first game because Nathan Peterman posted zero point zero QBR against the Ravens. So uh, yeah, not really ideal situation, but it worked out in the end. We see what Josh Allen is now. But people are going to talk about Hendon Hooker over Anthony Richardson, and that's my spiel about it. I think Anthony Richardson is the most talented quarterback in this draft class. And I think Anthony Richardson, uh, Hooker's offense hurts him. Which is weird to say. Which is very weird to say. Dude's Heisman Trophy finalist. He's going to be, probably, might be the winner of the Heisman. It's between him and Stroud at this point. Really. But, yeah. I got Richardson at four, Hendon Hooker at five. Who just threw some, him and Jalen Hyatt were on another level in that game. Good Lord. Jalen Hyatt had five touchdowns. 207 yards, five touchdowns on six catches. Randy Moss Thanksgiving vibes right there. And three of them were deep balls. Again, Hendon Hooker throws the best natural deep ball in all of college football. Don't care. Best deep ball in college football, best deep ball in the draft. He doesn't have the strongest arm. This is the same thing we had last year. I said Carson Strong threw the best deep ball. Best deep ball doesn't always imply that dude has the strongest arm. He just throws the ball best deep. He's not overthrow. Like, he rarely overthrows people. Again, he threw overthrew a receiver in the game. Could have been a touchdown. Wasn't. But it didn't matter in the end because he won. So... His interception was bad. I mean, not bad. I think it got tipped. He got... I th- wait, no. Someone's interception got tipped. Was it Jaron Hall? Jaron Hall threw an interception. No, Jaron Hall's was a bad throw. Who's got... T- it might have been Levis. I think Levis might have been intercepted off a tip. But Hooker's got... He got hit as he threw it, if I'm remembering right. And then Jaron Hall, he's still at six. He didn't play bad. Like, they got beat pretty good by Arkansas. Started off really good. They were up early. And then just couldn't figure things out. And KJ Jefferson just got on a roll. KJ Jefferson had a great game in that game. But Jaron Hall had three touchdowns, 356 yards, one interception. The interception was bad. The interception was bad. That's a that's one of those plays where I don't know what the back angle looked like. I don't know what he was looking at, but it looked the play just took really long to develop. And he threw it extremely late. So well, the play seemed to be, I don't know what exact route was. It looked like a post corner of some sort. And the receiver is basically standing on the sideline. And those types of throws, for those of you who don't play football or don't know the ins and outs of it, those types of throws normally, unless he's got a lot of room to work with, you throw it right on his break, hopefully to catch the defender off guard. But when he's standing like pretty much on the sideline, not moving, 
and then there's not a defender around him, there's going to be a defender that jumps it, and that's what happened. It's a impossible, damn near impossible throw to make just in general, let alone when the plays take so long to develop. When the play's taking longer, that's giving the defense more time, and the receivers are slowing down. Receivers, that's on the receivers to try and make something else happen, try to get open. But Hall made an impossible throw even harder by throwing it as late as he did, and then Hudson Card, the corner for Arkansas, white corner, got uh, the white dude got it picked off. Yeah, not a, not a not a great play by him, but he had some nice throws. Had a great touchdown pass at the end of the game. Had a beautiful pass at the beginning of the game to uh, crap. Who was it to? Puka Nako, Nak Nakua Nakua. Puka Nakua, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Beautiful ball. BYU's had some kicking issues all year. Like, they missed an extra point in this game. So, I'm not really surprised they went for it on fourth down and eight while they're in field goal range for most kickers. But I was also surprised by the play call because Jaron Hall threw it down the right sideline in a, a situation that you don't normally call this style play, but it worked out. Threw it right down the sideline to Nakua. Who and who brought it in beautifully for where the ball was placed to know where you are on the field to know to get your feet down to see the ball in your hands it was very impressive from Nakua but a great throw as well absolutely a great throw there's nothing the defender could do could have done about it ball was placed beautifully it didn't result in the touchdown but it was just a great throw one of the best throws of Saturday if I if I'm if I remember correct I think it was one of the best throws of Saturday I think it was the best throw on Saturday probably. And he threw a touchdown later in the game on a <laughs> at probably le- illegal pick play, but that's what happens. You're playing in Utah. You're at the home field refs, so that's what happened there. Probably illegal, but you know what? They didn't call it, so it counted. <laughs> they threw a flag, but they threw it on like an unsportsmanlike conduct because Arkansas was so pissed off about it. <laughs> but he had another touchdown later in the game. It was just a crossing route, or not a crossing route. The receiver Nakua came in motion. Across formation, wide open, walked in pretty much. And then his other one went later in the game. Who was that? Was that the Cody Epps down the the far sideline? I think it was the Cody Epps. It was a deep ball. They didn't score after that. It was just a tough game. Started off good, scored a lot of points, but just couldn't stop KJ Jefferson, who we'll be talking about a little bit. Number seven, Tyler Van Dyke uh, had a very nice game. Nice recovery game because he had that game against Middle Tennessee State. Bounced back against North Carolina to a certain extent. Had a very had a nice game last week. I wouldn't say very good. Nice game. Threw the ball a shit ton. And this one he threw it again a shit ton, 46 times. 351 yards. 13 more yards on the ground against Virginia Tech on the road. 20 to 14 victory. Nice game. I want to see Tyler Van Dyke get back into that rhythm because he's one of the more talented quarterbacks, just naturally talented quarterbacks in this draft. We're talking about size, arm talent, and all that stuff. And he can move. He's a bigger dude. But he can move to a decent, to a certain extent. I think he's a better mover than C.J. Stroud is. I think he's the he's more athletic than Stroud is. So if he can just get everything going, I think he could definitely be brought back up in that first round conversation. But if Jaron Hall, like the top six, have been relatively unchanged for the past however many weeks, so Tyler Van Dyke's going to have to have a good game. He did move up one spot, but uh, yeah, he'll need to have a good game against Duke, which I feel like he will. Number eight, we got Will Rogers. As we talked about before, Mississippi State had 100 yards, less than 100 yards the first half since for, for the first time since 2020. This game was so annoying to a certain extent. They Will Rogers threw the ball 37 times. I would bet 35 of those were checkdowns. 
Or if they weren't checkdowns, they were somewhere between the five and seven yard range. Like Kentucky played this game beautifully defensively. They had guys around. They would drop back, trying not to get beat deep because Will Rogers can beat teams deep easily. Their offense is built towards that. They played so deep that the only options Rodgers had was to throw it short. Like, Rodgers threw the ball 37 times, had just three yards over 200. That's crazy. So he had 37 attempts and had 200 yards. That is scary bad. That's not bad, but it's scary underwhelming for Mississippi State and Will Rodgers. Like, if you keep Mississippi State from scoring below 39 points... Or 35, whatever. 35 feels better, but they've scored 39 points. They'll lose. The two games they scored less than that, they lost. LSU and Florida. Or LSU and um, and Kentucky, not Florida. But it was just a... This game was just frustrating. Like, Will Levis getting hit every single time he dropped back, and then Mississippi State's checking him down every single play. But that's, again, that's the style of offense that this is. And if you have that check down, you're going to take it. It just didn't end up working. It's got it's a part of the game. If it's there, take it. But it's just rough, rough game. Uh, number nine, Tanner McKee. Got a big dub against Notre Dame. Brown applause for Stanford. Yeah, Tanner McKee played well. He didn't throw an interception, but he didn't throw a touchdown. <laughs> but he had 288 yards passing. Tanner McKee throws a very good football. Tanner McKee throws a very good football. I think once the draft process starts, like we get closer to April, I think he'll be a lot higher on this list. He's not like the greatest athlete of all time. He can't really move that well. But I could see him getting somewhere early third, late second round draft pick here. I think that's what we might be looking at because he's got the height. I mean, people watch what Justin Herbert's doing. Tanner McKee does that to a lesser level, but he looks like Justin Herbert. He's six foot six, got a really strong arm, plays for a Pac-12 school. Like, he's got the intangibles. He, David Shaw is his head coach, so everybody in the NFL loves David Shaw. So people are going to gravitate towards that. Davis Mills was an early third-round draft pick, and Tanner McKee is better than Davis Mills. He can't move as well as Davis Mills. Davis Mills isn't a great athlete either. He ran a pretty fast 40, but he doesn't really move all that well. And, well, I, I defended Davis Mills at the start of the season. Yeah, I'd like to retract that statement. He's not very good. <laughs> I was hoping he would be because I do like Davis Mills. I knew he wouldn't be the quarterback next year. I knew they were going to draft somebody, but it just, I wish he worked out more. But yeah, very impressive win. Very impressive win against Notre Dame. They needed that. And then number 10, KJ Jefferson. This is what I've been waiting for with Arkansas's offense. We knew KJ could run. We have known this, Sam Pittman. We have known that he can run the ball. Let the dude throw. Like, he has one of the strongest arms in all of college football. Let the dude throw. He can run. Yes, he's 6'3", 240, 45 pounds. He's a monster. But let the dude throw. And they unleashed him a little bit. at 367 yards. Had a, a, a set of career high in passing yards and passing touchdowns. Had five passing touchdowns, no turnovers. That's awesome. I know BYU doesn't have the greatest defense of all time, but that was a good game. I didn't know if KJ Jefferson was going to play or not because he had a concussion the week before. Or that two weeks before. He didn't play last week in the debacle against Mississippi State. But KJ had a good game. KJ had a very, very good game. Very good game. I was excited by that. He had a very nice game. Throw it deep. He threw it deep quite a bit. He did have some throws throughout the game that were a little behind, that were a little awkward, that he put took a whole hell of a lot off. But they ended up working. 
Like, he had one on a wheel route that he threw way behind, but it ended up working so the defender didn't have time to jump the route. So it kind of worked out beautifully. Maybe it was playing like that. <laughs> but that's the top 10 for this week. Once again, here it is again. We got C.J. Stroud, 1. Bryce Young, 2. Will Levis, 3. We got Anthony Richardson, 4. And Hendon Hooker, 5. Jaron Hall, 6. Tyler Van Dyke, 7. Will Rogers, 8. Tyler Van, uh, Tanner McKee, 9. And then uh, K.J. Jefferson, 10. Honorable mentions, we have got uh, Grace McCall, three touchdowns in the loss. Not a great game for Central for Coastal Carolina losing to Old Dominion like that, but he had a very solid stat line. We have Aiden O'Connell from Purdue, four touchdowns and a win over Nebraska. We have Michael Penix, four touchdowns and a win over Arizona. Also had a rushing touchdown as well. Had uh, five total touchdowns in the game, no turnovers. DJ Uyagalele, three touchdowns and one rushing touchdown in the win over Florida State. Very nice win for them. And, uh, yeah, 17 touchdowns, two picks on the season. I said one earlier, I meant two. And then Cameron Ward dropped out of the top 10. He did not have a great game against Oregon State this past weekend. But the talent is there. He is very talented. He just didn't and, uh, didn't have the game we were looking for from Cameron Ward this weekend. Now, I want to make sure I do this beforehand because I'm going to forget about it when I post it. I got to get the score line for Clemson versus Florida State because I did not put that in here. So Clemson won 34-28. Duh. Okay. I want to make sure I got that in there. Oh, man. I think that's all I've got for you today. I could be wrong. I think that's all we've got. I think that's all we've got. If I would look at the NFL games, let's look at some of the NFL games this week. Let's go bowl games, bowl game-wise. So we got the Cardinals versus the Saints. Hmm. What, what could be the bowl game here? The Tyron Matthew Bowl. The Tyron Matthew Bowl. The Honey Badger Bowl, because he played for both teams. Or, um... Yeah, it's probably probably the best thing we can come up with, isn't it? Is anybody on the Saints sponsored by FaZe or Call of Duty? Is that... The annoying wide receivers bowl, Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins. <laughs> Maybe that's one. Uh, then we got move on to Sunday. Falcons, Bengals. What's this bowl game? What's this bowl game going to be called? What do we call this one? The Screw Deshaun Watson Bowl? Because the Bengals are rivals of the Browns and Deshaun Watson did not go to the Falcons. Maybe that's one. Screw Deshaun Watson Bowl. Because with Deshaun Watson going to Cleveland, Matt Ryan was so pissed off the Falcons even thought of trading for him that they had to trade him to Indianapolis. We got Lions-Cowboys Thanksgiving Bowl. The two teams that play on Thanksgiving for God knows how long. We got the Colts and Titans, the mid-bowl, battle of mid. <laughs> got the, the Colts at 3-2-1 and one, and the Titans at 3-2. and two. You had the battle of mid. And then we got the Packers-Commanders. I don't know. What was this one? The Ugly Colors Bowl? This is a game, pretty gross game. Did Taylor Heineke play for the Packers? He played for the Vikings. I don't know if he played for the Packers. Carson Wentz is out for this week. He's out for like four to six weeks. I, haven't, I don't remember what it is, but... Yeah, the the Crappy Colors Bowl. <laughs> we got the Buccaneers and Panthers. Ah, crap. What's this bowl game going to be called? The Gerald McCoy Bowl? Because <laughs> I know he went to Carolina for a little bit after he got cut by Tampa. Gerald McCoy Bowl. The Expansion Bowl? Because both teams were once expansion teams? Maybe. Maybe. I think that one works. We got the Giants and Jaguars. Ugh, yuck. Um... 
Oh, what, what is this one going to be called? Giants are coached by Brian Dable, the former Bills coach bull. I know Doug, Doug Marone does not coach there anymore, but I can't think of anything else. Zay Jones? He was on the Bills with Brian Dable. The Zable Bull? Zay Jones and Brian Dable, both players, both on the Bills at the same time? Maybe that one works. Maybe that one works. Browns, Ravens? The, ex- uh, the, the, ex- <laughs> the Cleveland Browns Bull, because they're both the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, the Cle- <laughs> this is the Cleveland Browns Bull. Jets, Broncos? Oh, God, <laughs> this game. You got Robert Solos keeping all the receipts. And Russell Wilson's the danger witch. Be careful. It's spicy. I mean, if you've seen that ad that he has where he's like coming up with different names to like how way how many ways you can eat a danger witch. And he says the the knife and fork. I call this the knife and fork. Who says knife and fork? It's for or is it fork and knife? Which I I was upset about that when I watched earlier, but Give me a knife and fork. Oh, I guess it is like that. No, I'm saying that. The quotable bowl? The quotable bowl? I, I hate both teams involved in this stupid ass game. Texans Raiders, the Brock Osweiler Bowl. Because this is the game Brock Osweiler beat the Raiders <laughs> in the playoffs. The Brock Osweiler versus Connor Cook Bowl. <laughs> Terrible ass quarterbacks playing each other. They got the Chiefs and Niners. The uh, the D Ford Bowl because D Ford got traded from the Chiefs to the Niners after he got called offsides by the in the Patriots game. Is there anybody else there that we could call this game about the Jarek McKinnon Bowl because he's played for both teams? The Super Bowl rematch, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Then we've got the Chargers and Seahawks. Ugh. <laughs> um, man, I don't know. This game kind of sucks. The Seahawks are. Three and three somehow. Geno Smith somehow an MVP candidate. Which is weird that weird as hell. The the bald bowl? Because Tyler Lockett and <laughs> Austin Eckler are bald. Is that what we're gonna go with? The bald bowl? And then we've got the the Steelers and the Dolphins. Two making me crazy bowl? I, I have no idea. Two is supposed to play. We got two coming back from the concussion bowl, because Kenny Pickett's got a concussion. I don't know if he's gonna play. But Kenny Biggins got a concussion. Two is coming back from a concussion. We got the concussion bowl. And it bears Patriots the yuck bowl. Who the hell wants to watch these two offenses try to off out crap each other on offense? You got Matt Patricia and Joe Judge on the Patriots. And then you got whatever the hell the Bears are doing. It's just that's disgusting. That's the the, the disgusting bowl. So we've got the Saints Cardinals, the annoying wide receiver bowl. We got the Falcons and Bengals, the screw to Sean Watson Bowl. Lions and Cowboys, the Thanksgiving Bowl. Colts, Titans, Battle of Mid. We got the Packers and Commanders, the Crappy Colors Bowl. Command or the Buccaneers versus the Panthers, the former expansion team bowl. Two different results when they first came in the league as well. We got the Giants and the Jaguars. London's finest bowl. I have no idea. Both teams are <laughs> love playing in London. We got the Browns and Ravens, the Cleveland Browns Bowl. Jets, Broncos, quotable bowl. We got the Texans, Raiders, the good old-fashioned Brock Osweiler, Connor Cook Bowl. We got the Chiefs and Niners, the Super Bowl rematch. Hopefully the Niners could actually win this one. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? San Fran after you lose the Falcons. Can't beat them when it mattered, though. We got the Seahawks and Chargers. We got the Bald Bowl with Tyler Lockett and Austin Eckler. And then we got the Bears and Patriots, which is the Yuck Bowl. 
Yuck, this game makes me feel sick, and it's a primetime game. How do the Bears get back-to-back primetime games? Back-to-back? Really? Back-to-back. I understand every team needs at least one primetime game, but the the Commanders-Bears one, that one shouldn't have happened. I can kind of understand this one, because at least the Patriots are popular. Neither the the Bears or Commanders are unpopular. So, get that game out of here. Get that game absolutely the hell out of here. Okay, that's all I've got for you today. I think that's all I'm going to do. That's all we're going to do. I hope you guys enjoy the weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed the school. I hope Iowa actually showed up in the game against uh, Ohio State. Would be pretty fun if they did. Uh, Tyler, oh, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah Moore, second-year receiver at Ole Miss, is asked for a trade from the Jets. Man, crazy. Absolutely crazy. The Bills have also got a trade declined for Chris McCaffrey. That could be fun. But, yeah, Bills got to make a trade. They're going to get Odell Beckham, get Chris McCaffrey. It'd be freaking awesome. Now, that being said, we finally reached the two-hour mark. We reached the two-hour mark. Hope you all enjoyed the show. If you did not, I sincerely apologize. We'll try to be better next time. But if you did, we'll try to keep it the exact same. Try to be cool with you. Try to be absolutely cool with you. Do I have anything in my camera roll that I'm trying to remember? Is there anything that I have? The tight end, National Tight End Day is on Sunday. Who's the greatest tight end duo of all time? Tight end quarterback duo of all time? Josh Allen and Dawson Knox. All right, so that's all I've got for you today. Hope you enjoyed it. If not, I apologize. We'll try to be better next time. Hope you enjoy the weekend, and I will see you all later. Check out the blog post on LoganBlackmanShow.com, United States World Cup post, and the quarterback prospect rankings post as well. I'll see you all later. Have a good weekend. Peace.